Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what damage control does for small businesses. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We'll be skipping past the latest comic book movie and TV news this week and instead diving straight into a spoiler-free discussion of John Watts' 2017 movie Spider-Man Homecoming. After that, we'll have uh, a, a brief little break where all you spoiler folks can jump ship, um, or jump ferry in this case, and then everyone else can come back and listen to our spoiler-filled thoughts um, of the movie with, uh, when we discuss it in depth. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me a comic book concept that's a movie fan that I just don't understand. And this week, you guys, I would like for you to explain to me the concept of time. <laughs> more specifically linear slash non-linear time in comic books and how it works because um it's it's time has been an interesting concept in the movies this week uh so let's let's figure out how it works on the page yeah i mean the like it is still linear on the page or broadly linear it shapes yeah. out as linear uh, okay the question is whether it's like fixed like was spider-man first spider-man in the 60s or given that he's like in his what late 20s now was he first spider-man in the early 90s like how long has he been spider-man and this is without kind this is outside of the idea of like rebirths and uh, yeah sort of irrespective of any kind of reboots or or, yeah um, i mean secret wars or that kind of thing marvel marvel doesn't do like erasing everything and starting again hmm in the same way that DC does. Like, every comic that Marvel publishes is still canonical. Uh, and when they're published, they take place in the present day. And James, then... I just have one thing to say to that. Mephisto. <laughs> oh, it's, it's st- they're still canonical, though. They just happen <laughs> slightly differently. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> but yeah, like, they, when they're published, they take place in the present day. And then later on, they take place in the sort of recent uh, past. The word that which, the, the phrase that James is skirting around is sliding timeline. Yeah, this is what Marvel have. They have a sliding timeline, which means that everything slides towards the present. 
regardless of when it happened. Which does, it creates these problems where you have, like, Magneto was in the Nazi death camps. Yeah. Hmm. So, in sort of 20, in the, like, 2030s, he's going to be impossibly old or something. The best example of this recently was when they did All New X-Men, which was a comic with a pretty damn good premise and i really enjoyed those early issues of it i think i think it 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 worked the premise quite well but the problem is the premise of the series was the original five x-men get brought through time to the present day um and obviously the original x-men's comics were published in the 1960s but because of the sliding timeline the idea with marvel is that basically whatever whatever year you're in Fantastic Four number one happened about 15 years ago, uh, which actually creates an unusual situation with Marvel now, where the entire Marvel universe is supposed to have happened post 9-11. But with with all new X-Men, they were brought to the present day and yet acted like they were from the 60s. So there is literally a scene where Cyclops picks up a a bottle of water in a shop and doesn't know what bottled water is. And it's just, you know, and but, you know, a a story with the X-Men coming from you know, to 1998 to 2012, whenever it was it was published, um, isn't very interesting. A story with the X-Men coming from the 60s to the present day is a pretty good idea. I mean, uh, all new X-Men ended up being so ridiculously diverged from the original X-Men concept that I'm, I'm prepared to accept that those characters are from a parallel universe and they are from the 60s in their parallel universe. But um, <laughs> it does give you probably... While it solves some problems, like you don't have to keep you know, you don't have to have characters keep on aging. It does also create other problems like that. Yeah, the problem, like the problem is, you can't keep it all in order. And like Marvel used to do that in sort of back when continuity was not as complicated. They would do things like when Wolverine was off in a limited series, he wouldn't appear in the X Men comics for four months, right? Because he was off doing other stuff. And like, yeah. gradually they had too many comics, and Wolverine was in too many of them to keep any sort of order intact. And, like, there were specific editors, like, Mark Grenwald used to, was sort of, like, the keeper of that flame in keeping everything chronological. But when he, unfortunately, passed away, um, they became a lot looser about doing that. Okay, so here's my question. How has Grant Morrison attempted to explain this? (laughs) Well, DC, which obviously where Morrison's done most of his work, uh, approach it slightly differently. Um, for certainly for a long time, they pretty much allowed time to elapse. Um, there was, I think there was less of a fear at DC of characters aging. So you had stuff like, you know, obviously the, the time frames were still a bit, a bit loose because at the end of the day, you've got serialized stories being published monthly, but you don't have a month between every event in every issue. So things are still compressed a little bit, but when you're looking, so, um, the example I was going to draw on was, was Robin, you know, sort of Dick Grayson is Robin as like a nine, 10 year old, but was allowed to, you know, go off to college and then become an adult and become Nightwing. And that kind of thing happened with several characters, Wally West as well. Um, but at the same time, you know, he wasn't, he was nine years old when he first appeared in 1940. Uh, he only became like 18 years old in the early eighties, but DC had a couple of different ways of dealing with it. Um, and one of which was the whole, this was why earth two was created. They basically reached a point in like the fifties where they realized that these characters had been around for a while. So they had it that earth two was where the older versions of the characters were. And earth one had them in the present day at their current ages. 
Now, you can't keep that going forever, and obviously Crisis on Infinite Earths got rid of a, a lot of that as well. Um, but DC have always had this idea that superheroes began roughly in the 1940s. And to begin with, that included Superman and Batman. And there basically came a point where they shuffled history a little bit and had it so that you'd had the Justice Society in the 40s and then superheroes kind of went away a bit and then Superman and Batman turned up in the 1980s. That was kind of the status quo as of the post-crisis reboot. And I think it's always given them that quite nice sense of history. And they still have to fudge things in terms of ages because when you got to the 90s, you had those Justice Society characters who were technically, some of them were still active um, and they sort of had had, there was a plot explanation that basically their aging had been slowed. But like you read, um, and I know we got you, oh, well, I got you to read the first volume of Starman. And that is a series that's very much rooted in the idea of Ted Knight was a superhero in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. And now his son is a superhero. And that wouldn't be possible in a universe that has a, 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 con, a compressed or a sliding timeline. And I think that was one of the big mistakes that they made with one year later, uh, not one year later, uh, the new 52, which was to say that everything in the DC, in the new DC universe had happened within a period of five years. You just completely lost that sense of history. And I think it's something with rebirth that they're gradually trying to bring back. They've already now said that actually it should have been 15 years since Batman <laughs> and Superman's first appearances. It was the, the part of the idea of rebirth was that 10 years had been stolen by somebody. Dr. Manhattan. Um, <laughs> but there, there's talk that they are going to bring the Justice Society into it, and I think they're going to feed them actually as having been around, you know, maybe not in the 40s, but certainly in the past. Um, and at the end of the day, as I, as I mentioned before, like with monthly comics, the comics have this problem of they come out once a month, but sometimes the events in that comic may only take place over the course of a few days. So time is always going to be an issue. Um, but they just have their different ways of dealing with it. It's up what to would, you to say, which is better. <laughs> what I would like to see is someone count up how many Marvel Christmases there have been, because there was a period where, like, every <laughs> December, you'd get a couple of Christmas stories. Well, James, I look forward to you doing that research and coming back <laughs> with an answer for us this time uh, next week, um, or maybe this time next year, depending on how our concept of time works. Um, <laughs> would it be fair to say, mostly, though, with all this time stuff in comics... If you're thinking about it, maybe the comic's doing something wrong. Like, ideally, is this just something that you aren't considering unless they're doing some kind of conceptual story that actually asks you to do that? I think Bendis doing a thing of, like, the X-Men come from the 60s to the present day, like, it got some, they got some good jokes out of it, but ultimately it's a misstep because it just makes you think, so wait, how long has it been? Because, like, yeah. there's no way Cyclops in the current continuity is, like, in his 70s or 60s or 70s. Like, it's just mm. not. So they kind of come from the 60s, and that breaks your story, and it confuses readers. So yeah, the yeah. best thing to do is just anything that happened previously happened in the recent past. And if you start getting specific, you're in trouble. Like, one fun thing they do is, like, occasionally contemporary references get updated. So, like... The Punisher for a while was a guy from Vietnam, like who had, sorry, had been in Vietnam in the war. And at some point in the early 2000s, that became the Gulf War. Except in imagine, the Garth Ennis stuff, where it Except where in the Garth Ennis stuff, so but that was, was off. <laughs> yeah, that was off in its own pocket continuity anyway. But like I imagine by this point, uh, it's gone from being Operation Desert Storm or whatever to being uh, Afghanistan. 
Um, I was, it, there was always an interesting thing at DC, though. I mean, I say, while, while DC did always have a bit more of a sense of history, there was still this sense of ages being quite locked in time, you know, Superman sort of being perpetually around 30. But an exception was John Constantine. And if you follow, even despite, you know, again, stories kind of playing out over several months when they're in a short period of time, they, they put John Constantine's birthday in the comics quite a few times and he basically did age correctly over the course of Hellblazer's run. So by the time Hellblazer ended, he was in his 50s and was presented as being in his 50s in the comic, having been in like his late 20s back when it started. So that was a quite nice exception, but they wanted to de-age him for the <laughs> that, new 50s. I can tell thing, you actually, so. the one comic that does, I believe, do this, like the actual thing happening in real time is Savage Dragon. I'm pretty sure Savage Dragon is essentially uh, published in real time. So, like, the character has aged, you know, 25, 30 years since he was yeah. first created. That's but, yeah, I mean, your, your, your point about, yeah, you know, you shouldn't generally notice it. It's it's like any other issue relating to continuity. Um, if If everything's being handled well and the right the right elements are being drawn on and referred to, it doesn't matter. And as you say, you know, there's a bigger problem there if you're going, well, hang on, this doesn't square with this, you know. Yeah, it's all about careful I've, writing. Which I've spent an entire week doing since uh, seeing Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll that. get into that. In fact, why not get into it right now? Not that issue specifically, because I think maybe we save all of that stuff for spoilers. Um, but we'll, uh, we will move on now to our spoiler free discussion of Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, let's, let's, uh, do, do we want to listen to a trailer here? Let's, yeah, let's, let's play one of the trailers that gave away some of the plot and then we'll later we'll play another trailer that gives away even more of the plot. <laughs> <laughs> or we could play one of those trailers that literally has stuff not from the film in them. Yeah. Perfect. Well, we'll we'll play one of those. We'll we'll try and play for the spoiler-free section. One of the less spoilery trailers. What's up, guys? Wait a minute. You guys aren't the real Avengers. I can tell Hulk gives it away. No, we've seen that before. Never with that skirt. She probably stops staring before it gets creepy, though. Yeah. Too late. You guys are losers. So, to become an Avenger, are there like trials or an interview? Just don't do anything I would do. And definitely don't do anything I wouldn't do. There's a little gray area in there, and that's where you operate. Oh. All right. That's not a hug. I'm just grabbing the door for you. All right, kid. Good luck out there. Listen, I know school sucks. Peter, you still with us? Uh, yeah, yeah. I know you want to save the world, but you're not ready yet. You're the Spider-Man. No, I'm not. I'm not. This is just a costume. This is from the ceiling. Stay close to the ground and stay out of trouble. Forget. 
get the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. I'm sick of him treating me like a kid all the time. But you are a kid. This is my chance to prove myself. Peter, what is going on with you? I'm really sorry. I'm so busy. I'm slammed. Don't mess with me. Because I will kill you and everybody you love. Okay, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, you guys. Who wants to go first? Who wants to tell me uh, why it is the third best of all of the Spider-Man movies to date? (laughs) Because there are three really bad Spider-Man movies that it's had. Well, no, two really bad and one not very good movie that it's had of. Like I'm in an odd position of like the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, that was quite good. And the second time I saw it, I thought, actually, that was a lot better than I gave it credit for the first time around. But you gave and you gave it four stars in the site review after your yeah, first yeah. viewing. Yeah, like I so. still think it's it's the third best Spider-Man film, but I think it's a much better film in its own right, having seen more of it. Because like the first time I went, I didn't like I had all these expectations about maybe what story it was telling and what char- what the character was. And the second time around, I was like, okay, I know where it's going to end up, and now I see how they're feeding into that, hmm. and I missed all that stuff the first time. It's it's funny on the on the rankings point. I saw a, there was an article on IndieWire ranking the Spider Man Spider Man movies um, uh, from David Ehrlich, and it was uh, so at the bottom: Amazing Spider Man two, then the Amazing Spider Man, then Homecoming. Oh, sorry, then Spider Man three, then Homecoming, then Spider Man, then Spider Man two, right at the top. And I thought it was remarkable, just like how much of a clear, definable difference there is between all of those films. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even have to think about ranking those movies. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was like, you can't have got much pushback on this. Like, even well, if you y- kind of prefer the amazing, like the Amazing Spider-Man movies more than than we do, I think you'd still find it tough to rank them above. There, there the are others. some people, and I've seen some people say they think Amazing Spider-Man Two is the best Spider-Man movie, which is a nonsense, but <laughs> it is an opinion. Um, you know even as you say like there are people who like the amazing spider-man films but i think i think it's the closest there is to a consensus anywhere in this entire genre that ranking of spider-man films there might be some people who put homecoming above the raimi ones for various kind of stylistic or or tone reasons and i know there are people like you joe or maybe it's just you joe who prefer the first (laughs) raimi one to the second one um, which, you know, we, we have discussed that on the podcast in detail already, I, so we don't need to get into it. And that it's, I know it's kind of personal reasons for a lot of it. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, like it's the they, difference between favour and best. Yeah. Like, and, but, you know, they, they break down in such a, a clearly defined way. And I find it interesting when, you know, obviously James saw this before I did, and James said he wasn't sure if it was maybe even the second best one. And I think I, I'm, I think I would have it a pretty clear third, but there's definitely things it does that I like more than the first Raimi one. I, I think say, it's like just the having... first Raimi one is is so perfectly formed that, um, you know, I think in in many ways it's more enjoyable than the first Raimi one. But um, well, this this is my thing. Like having seen it twice, I think structurally, like as a as pieces of cinema. Homecoming and Spider-Man 1 are both about on level pegging, hmm. but the Raimi films ha- are, like, are a more iconic version of Spider-Man. Definitely like more iconic, yeah. They're way more timeless, whereas Homecoming is like a modern Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man. Yeah. 
It's yeah, definitely like... the the funniest Spider-Man film there's been. And, oh, and, sure, and when yeah. it comes to Spider-Man, you you can't overstate the importance of of that element. Like you know, a Spider-Man I film mean, should yeah. be funny. <laughs> We talked um, before about how Ra- the one big fault with Raimi's Spider-Man films was that he wasn't funny enough mm. or quippy enough when he was in the suit. Like, there was a lot of angst even then. Mm. And this has no angst. I mean, it does a bit, but it has the right, ki- it has the right yeah, kind it has of the angst right type for of this angst. age, Peter, and, and Peter at this stage in his career. It, it, gets, it gets that exact type of angst perfectly. Which, you know, mm-hmm. well, I'm sure we'll come to. Um, I, I do think I did spend sort of certainly the first half and maybe even the first two thirds a little disappointed in places. Like there was lots of stuff that I enjoyed and I liked the character stuff and, and I thought, the, you know, the, all the web slinging stuff was nice, but I did have this nagging feeling for a lot of the film. I know what's going to happen next, and I know what's going to happen in this scene. And oh, it's a big scene on a boat. I wonder how that scene's going to end, and I wonder <laughs> if Tony Stark's going to. And like you know, um, the, okay, I don't know if this is spoiler territory, but um, a question mark over whether or not Tony Stark is in an Iron Man suit when the trailer has already shown him stepping out of that suit in that scene and taking <laughs> the costume off Peter, mm. and that scene comes like it's over halfway into the film, isn't it? Well over halfway. And this, and we're being, and we're getting stuff where the trailers have shown us how it's, a scene uh, plays out. I would describe but, it as being right at the end of the second act. Seb. Yeah. <laughs> and then there comes a point, and I really won't talk about this in detail because it is for the spoiler section. There comes a point where something happens that caught me unbelievably off guard, and I was kicking myself for how off guard it caught me. And I'm sure a lot of people felt the same. And it's from the that- best scene in the movie by yeah. <laughs> some margin. It's the it's the one scene that I walked out and went. Um, we'll talk about it more, but the one yeah. scene I walked out and went, oh, wow, that, I mean, that scene was perfect. But, but, but I mean, from when, that when point on, it, sorry, go on. I, well, like when me and Joe went to a screening together, our first one, and when we saw it, like it literally got a round of applause, that scene. Mm. Yes. And like film critics who were there for free are sometimes quite hard to impress. Like, the only time I've seen that level of reaction to a film was at Fantastic Four, and that was not in a good way. <laughs> like, I've, you know, in all my years of attending screenings, I've never seen a mid-scene get, like, a scene in the middle of a film get a round of applause that way. Mm. Like, and, but, and kind of electric. like, I I enjoyed hearing the actual dialogue in that scene the second time I went to watch <laughs> yeah, this yeah, film, because exactly. the first time it was just laughter the entire way through. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, from that point on, and it's a shame it came so late, I was completely sold on everything the film was doing and that's and i actually feel like maybe like you james i will probably feel more fondly of the the first half of the film when i see it again because Mm -hmm. that 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 closing act of the film and i think it's probably with the possible exception of avengers the best third act of an Um, mcu no Um, no sir (laughs) i'm not sure i agree with that yeah we're gonna argue so much i think it (laughs) might be i think it might be one of the mcu's worst third acts (laughs) i like i i thought that that scene was absolutely magic but that the film ground to an agonizing um hole and that the di- the action direction in this film is woeful like, Gen- really generally yeah well. that's, that, that, that is a big flaw in it yeah There's... especially in that last fight it's borderline incoherent like it's really bad when they're doing all the uh, again, third uh, act stuff we don't we don't we don't have to get into the specifics of what the like the third act showdowns are but it kind of breaks down into two parts and the first I had forgotten happened by the time that I was rewatching the film. I was like, oh yeah, they do this bit first, don't they? 
And then the second bit is kind of like, I, I thought like an Iron Man 2-esque anticlimax where they have that like fight with Riplash in the park. <laughs> I, uh, there was, there was, there's one scene right at the end, which I d- was grinning ear to ear watching. But apart from that, everything that happened post the best scene in the movie, I kind of went, from an from an action point of view, I'd agree with you, but that's a problem throughout the film. In terms of how the film steps up what it's doing with the character stuff, is is where I think it really comes into its own. As yeah, I, I think it reflects better on the earlier part of the film when you see what's been being set up and you see what's been being built up to. Then, yeah, it, it casts the first half of the film in a much better light. I will agree with you that action is a problem, but it's not unique to the ending. I, as I say, apart from the no, fact that not, some of not, the web slinging looks nice, um, action is a big problem in this film because it's just, there's no iconic, memorable action sequences. There is a big famous shot that's in the trailer. And even that is just a retread of the most famous shot from Spider-Man 2. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, this film does nothing to create big visual iconic spider-man movie moments but i think it does some really great memorable spider-man character moments yeah and so okay uh i I apologize listeners i'm gonna be the grumpy one i thought that this was one of the most aggressively mediocre superhero (laughs) movies i've seen like i and i really did enjoy it in the moment like in the first screening i was laughing pretty regularly throughout because um like the jokes are funny um Especially the first act pops along at a really nice, like, buoyant pace, and it's it's just a, a fun film to be watching and a fun character to be spending time with because they've the Tom Holland casting is perfect, the performance is perfect, um, the costume looks great, and I think that that is it's the classic Marvel thing that even after I've walked out of a film that I wasn't massively sold on, I go yes, but I'm looking forward to seeing that character pop up in hopefully a better film next time around. <laughs> um, and I would again, so I wouldn't say that I, I like hated the movie, but it it's just lacking something for me. And I think I think what it is is um, it, it's, it's my it's my perennial complaint about what's this movie about and the answer to that can often be it it, you know it it can be like some grand metaphor or it can be this like guardians of galaxy 2 this is about fathers and sons or or like forging family relationships um you know it it can be you know like logan about moving on uh, like your, your kind of your legacy and reflecting on life um or it could it could just be like something really really simple about this is this is a film about the relationship between these two people and the thing that i came out of spider-man homecoming thinking was i know peter and i like peter but i don't feel like i came away from the film caring about any relationship that he had with any other character i mean there's like there's tony stark but there's the, the tony stark thing is like here is a mentor that i want to impress who's like bow fingering in the movie like he's he's not there he's not he's not really a part of this film tony stark he's he's more a part of the marketing than he is a part of the movie and like i didn't feel like i connected to like with peter and aunt may's relationship um like Zendaya's barely there as Michelle. Uh, Laura Harrier's character is, is re- it really is the female lead. And while I liked the idea of the character, I thought the performance was kind of a little bit empty. And 
her relationship with Peter Parker paper thin. And like, I, I was just going through like, who, who is, who am I investing in with Peter here? And I got to be honest, I found Ganky really annoying. <laughs> you mean, you mean Ned. Ned? I don't mean Ned. I mean Ganky. Um, <laughs> well, to be fair, just... if you found him annoying like that, it's hard to reconcile the film because yeah. like he's there as Peter's conscience or whatever. Like mm. you know, the voice in you know the voice in his ear. What's the opposite of conscience? Like he's kind of the devil on his shoulder, yeah, because he's saying like this is cool. Tell everyone away. <clears throat> Spoilers. <laughs> um, he's yeah, he's saying things that Peter is thinking well. but must fight against. And yeah, I think I, if you don't buy into that relationship, it's going to harm the film. Because also, crucially, this is the thing that when you say, like, you weren't sure what the film was about, the second time, I I would have agreed with you the first time. But having seen it again, I feel like I figured out what the film is and what Peter's arc is and how Ned relates to that. And it kind of all came together for me in a way that it didn't the first time because I had these sort of... Like, I expected it to have the shape of an origin story, even if it wasn't an origin story. And I think while they try and go for that, it's also, it's about something different than Peter learning to be a hero or whatever. Story for Spider-Man normally is the with great power comes great responsibility story. Yeah. Whereas I (laughs) I thought, I thought that the arc of this film was mostly with great neighborhood comes much friendly i don't know like no i I mean i i think because i've seen a few people say oh the film doesn't really go heavily into the power and responsibility thing i absolutely think it does it's just that it never says it and i was expecting a moment where peter would mention it when talking to stark i think it's completely about peter being like peter has you know we know he's become spider-man we know that at some point uncle ben will have said that to him we know he will have this burning thing inside him that he has to do something responsible with his powers because he's spider-man all of that is there what this film at least to me felt like it was about was okay what do i do next i really want to to do this but i i'm i don't know what i do next there's that and i think there are plenty of moments when you sort of, you do see, you know, you, you get these classic Peter Parker moments of, oh, he's almost on the verge of having a social breakthrough, but Spider-Man gets in the way. And there's that, you know, the whole bit with the party. Um, and then when suddenly it's just, no, he is running off to deal with it. And it's like, that's that moment of once he's done this once, that's what he will always do. That's that from now on, that's what Peter Parker will always do in that situation is he will run off and be Spider-Man and he will sacrifice whatever positive thing could be going on in in his life um but you see it doesn't it do, it didn't feel to me like in the movie that being spider-man was ever a bad thing or a burden it wasn't that he was like reluctantly putting on his costume and going to do his that whole, that whole that whole bit no, when, no, no, when they're at no. when they're at the it's, um uh, the competition thing he basically completely you know has to jettison his social life and his academic achievement. Yeah, in order no, he, to, he only the goes whole, there. In the the first, he only th- goes there in the first place because he he's tracking the thing. Like it, it's it seems to me like he wants to be Spider Man because it's fun. Like that's that's the theme of this movie. Like being a superhero is really fun. How cool is it? And I do kind of like that. But like literally, the first act of the film has him watching the clock, waiting for when he can be Spider Man. Like, the whole point yeah, it, is, he prefers being Spider-Man than anything else, and that's why it's a weird, like, I, one of the things I think it didn't do well is the, the marriage of the social life and superhero life, because there was no hint that he ever really would choose being a social life. He was always just like, when can I get I, in costume I, and do the costume stuff? I think like, there are okay, moments he was, where it feels like it. 
Yeah, I, I well, I I wonder whether we are maybe that because we're talking about specifics here that we should be uh, we should be <laughs> well, maybe can we, can we just talk about one a... more thing in a general sense because we haven't yes something that we haven't really touched on and we will go into it in more detail in the spoilery section. Uh, Michael Keaton, definitely one of the best villains in the MCU. Yeah, yes, so that's the one thing that I did warm to on the on the second viewing. Um, I think he is kind of perfectly pitched in an area of this is a guy who in the normal world, in the real world, I can kind of like imagine and being pushed like just like not a great guy and nudged in a direction that goes, oh, well, I feel like I'm being screwed by the world. So I'm going to screw the world back and um and like kind of pitched between that and then like actual villain malevolence like there's there's he like tiptoes between the two and like dances from one to the other. And I think it makes him compelling as a character, but also pretty scary. So yeah, I'd say he is, I mean, it's not, it's not hard to get in there, but he's definitely top five. Well, it's villains, what, what strikes three. me about it as well is that obviously a lot of the time in, in superhero, both comics and cinema, the, the villains are what sells it. And a lot of the time the movies have got pretty great, source material to work with when it comes to villains and a lot of the best villains that have been on screen are also the best villains in the comics so your dr octopus your joker your lex luthor like these are great characters in the comics who then convert to great characters on the screen sometimes they convert badly but you know um i can't think of many examples where a villain was as crap in the comics as the vulture is (laughs) who has turned into something so much better by the movies. Like, just thematically... I mean, okay, there is a quite good thematic thing with the Vulture in the comics, which I feel like we've talked about it before, but this idea that he's um, an old man and Peter's a young kid, and that, so he's like the first major villain that, that he fights, and there is some stuff there. But other than that, the, there's been nothing interesting about the Vulture for 50-plus years. <laughs> this, like, gives him far more character depth, gives him... You know, the thematic thing of he is a vulture because he, like, his job is that he is literally a vulture. That is literally what he's using the costume for. <laughs> and then everything gets sets up in terms of the character and Peter, which, ah, spoilers. But, um, yeah, I just, I mean, I loved pretty much every moment that he was on screen, except for some of the bits where he's just fighting in a CGI costume and it doesn't look very good. But every moment where you can see Michael Keaton's face in this, <laughs> I even liked, while I know you guys, I remember you guys talking about when it was first revealed, not really liking the mechanical design. I do like the way he wears a bomber jacket under when he's flying yeah, it, and, it and the, the collar <laughs> of the bomber jacket looks like the vulture's <laughs> neck collar. Yeah, that that's was a great really little nice touch. touch. And also, like, I kind of... I really liked the way they dealt with the wingsuit being like, it was kind of like cumbersome and heavy and it was something you couldn't get into without like special apparatus and stuff. Like it was really, they did it in a really interesting way, I thought, as in like, yeah, he's not Tony Stark, so he hasn't got like magic armor that basically attaches to him like he yeah, needs in fact, scaffolding what, and underlings to help him and stuff what he was kind of like is the ultimate tony stark which the movies ended up not really going <laughs> in the direction of for the sake of convenience but yeah yeah excellent okay well i think that seems like a good point to um to jump off and go into our spoiler uh, our spoiler filled section um, but to sum up, I'm kind of like middling mediocre on the film. Uh, you guys like it a lot more. So, um. <laughs> but we both like it. We all like it less than Spider-Man 1 and 2. Yeah. Yes. And more than the rest. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> okay, um, so what we'll do is we'll listen to another trailer, maybe a spoilery one now, um, and then we'll come back with our spoiler-filled discussion of the film. What's up, guys? So, to become an Avenger, are there, like, trials or an interview? Do me a favor. Can't you just be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? Just stay close to the ground. You're the Spider-Man from YouTube. Can you summon an army of spiders? No, Ned, no. Do you know him, too? I stole his shield. Can I try the suit on? Badass. The rich and the powerful, like Stark, they don't care about us. The world's changing, boys. Time we change, too. These weapons are crazy dangerous. Listen, Peter, forget the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. The illegal weapons barrier was at 2.30. You missed it. Somebody had died. I was just trying to be like you. I wanted you to be better. I'm gonna need the suit back. But I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. I screwed up. You need to stop carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. I want you to understand. I'll do anything to protect my family. I know you know what I'm talking about. So don't mess with me. That will kill you and everybody you love. My friends are up there. The guy is still out there. I just got to do this on my own. Just don't do anything stupid. I got this. All right. Yeah. Okay, uh, shall we talk about the best scene in the movie first? <laughs> yeah. The yeah, big the big spoiler re- reveal, which is that um, Adrian Toomes, the vulture, is... Um, oh, God, what's her name? Liz <laughs> Allen. Is, so that's the point. Is the father, yeah, because, is the and father this is, of Liz Allen. And this is why it would have caught me and James off guard, because we would have just assumed that her surname was Allen, because it was never mentioned. I mean, I think, to be fair, the film does call her Liz Allen. Does it's it? definitely in the credit. She's Liz Allen. Yeah, oh, she's she? not Liz. She's not Liz. I thought Toons. she was just. Oh, okay. That's. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I, I was thinking this. I was thinking, yeah. ah, do you know, do you know what? Like, uh, a, a, like a, a family in Queens in 2017. What, what the surnames? Yeah. It's not. It's not really. It doesn't but matter, does it? Yeah, there's, yeah, exactly. there's so many uh, levels that it works on. Like, I mean, like obviously, yeah, the fact that we know her as Liz and we know that in the comics Liz isn't Adrian Toomes' daughter. Um, yeah, the fact that it plays on what the film is doing generally with race and diversity and that when you see Michael Keaton talking about his family at various points in the film, you would have a mental picture of them. Mm-hmm. And I imagine most people would not have automatically pictured him with a black wife and a mixed race daughter. So, you know, there's no reason it shouldn't be the case and it makes absolute sense for it to be the case. But you wouldn't automatically go there in your head. And even like that scene 
definitely builds up to the way that it's that it's framed and the way that it's shot. Just before the door opened, I was like, something weird's going to happen. The way that this is being played, it's, Liz isn't just going to answer the door. Someone, and I thought it was going to be some kind of prank on Peter and that like Flash or someone would answer the door. I thought something weird was going to happen. And even though I thought something weird was going to happen, my brain still did not go to, oh, her dad's going to be Tombs. It was, it's, it's just it's, such a good moment. It's and playing like, on the casually racist expectations of all the audience, <laughs> all of the audience exactly, including yeah. the three of us. <laughs> like even just thematically, the idea of like your boyfriend's, uh, your girlfriend's father being like the biggest villain around, like as a metaphor. Coming out of the screening, we we were chatting with um, Catherine Bray, um, uh, formerly of uh, Film Four, and. I said to her, like, I'd lo- that was the one scene I just, n- no reservations, knocked out of the park, absolutely loved, because every, every teenage boy in the world has had the moment where they've had to meet the parents and specifically the father <laughs> of a girlfriend for the first time. And I remember meeting dads of girlfriends um, some of whom were like very friendly and welcoming from word go. Some of whom eyed me with uh, suspicion and just like, but it, and that, that moment is like, I, I like it. It gave me flashbacks. I was like, Oh God. Yeah. The awkwardness and the like slight, the, the fearfulness of the situation. And I was saying to Catherine, like, um, I loved the metaphor of that scene. She said, yeah, it's like a Buffy episode in one scene, isn't it? That just mm-hmm. that one perfect mm-hmm. metaphor for teenage life put into some kind of high concept and here it's a superhero concept oh the villain that you've been fighting is your girlfriend's dad yeah. and now and now you have to sit there across the table <laughs> both looking at each other <laughs> and then and and I think then the way that the scene plays out the way that Tom Holland plays the scene the way that Michael Keaton plays the scene when Toombs realizes who Peter is and mm. the pacing with which that unfolds uh, it's just perfect even like finish. that's one of the few points in the film as well where i was like hey the direction of this is really good because it has like he's in the front of the car and it's like doing shots of him in the mirror and it has a bit with like the traffic lights lighting up to Mm. change the color on his face and stuff and it's like this really cool sort of low-key imagery yeah it's the scene in the movie that convinces you that john watts might exist (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm still i'm still wondering especially after i mean i saw lots of press junkets with tom holland and dyer uh amy pascal and kevin feige um I'm, <laughs> i know that i know that this film has uh i think maybe 27 credited writers and i was just assuming that that, <laughs> that they'd they'd run out of people to like they couldn't hire anyone else so they just made up a non-deplume for a director uh, who directed some, you know, kind of some dancing movie because that's what all the superhero movie directors do now. <laughs> I'm still not convinced that he exists, but you're right. Yeah, there's 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 stuff in that scene and there's certainly stuff, I think, in the first act, some of the high school stuff, uh, the kind of poppy montage stuff at the start of the film where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is good. I'm enjoying this. I, I, I read a, a criticism... Um, of this by so 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 a critic who didn't really like this film so more on your level Joe uh, was Robbie <laughs> Collin um, although it was interesting that he published his relatively negative review of this not long after an extremely positive review of Transformers Five but he just has a blind spot for those films is it five I I, 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 Transformers I is Transformers Robbie Collins <laughs> Robbie Collins thought, thoughts on trans on tra- on Michael Bay are fascinating because to be he fair he cre- justifies he them credits very Bay well. with being an otter <laughs> yeah no it's 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 a fast like <laughs> I hate those movies but I think it's very difficult to argue with the idea that Michael Bay is a modern day otter. 
Mm. It's terrifying, <laughs> but it's probably true. Yeah, in anyway. the same way as Zack Snyder is, really. Um, it's just whether you like what they're doing. Um, but no, um, but anyway, so his criticism, his, one of his main criticisms of this was that all of the high school stuff felt like uh, Steve Buscemi in a music band t-shirt saying, how do you do, fellow kids? Um, I would massively disagree with that. I was going to say, I think that's unfair. I I think it's probably unfair, but I can't tell because I'm not a teenager in Queens in the year 2017. So to me, in terms of how it did the sort of what you would call the kind of universal teenage experience stuff, I think it did quite well. Whether the trappings were, you know, I mean, the you know, I always think it's funny now that there is this kind of there's a thing in movies that's, and I don't know if it's true or not, that seems to assume that teenagers now are obsessed with the styling and the music and everything of the 80s, and it's mainly because that's when the people making these films were in high school themselves. So an 80s-themed homecoming dance where Flock of Seagulls is playing when they walk in, like, would that actually happen now, or is that just because that's what happened at your real-life homecoming dance back in the 80s? I think it might more be because in the 80s they were going to 50s-themed ones. Yeah, <laughs> but so yeah, I I I I can't speak to how authentic the the teen stuff is, but I thought it was all nice and breezy and engaging and well, didn't think, feel awkward. And I mean, yeah. the, the opening sequence right with saying... him filming Civil War on his phone felt really perfect to me, and kind of the way Tom Holland was talking into the character uh, into mm. the camera and narrating some of the stuff, and just and like <laughs> like almost like his his. The bit where he's just in a fight was like a live reaction YouTube video yeah. that, you, that you see popping up. Like, <laughs> I just, I, I thought all of that stuff there was really well judged. I, I would have liked the John Hughesy stuff to be a little bit less on the nose from time to time. I, I particularly thought the Ferris Bueller. I could have, I could have done without the Ferris Bueller bit, to be honest. Just. Um, I, you don't, you could, you can directly reference those shots without having to have it on the TV. Yeah. And Tom yeah. Holland go, oh, cool movie, dude. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, that's, it was like I'll be honest, the, the moment the in, Civil, in War, Civil War. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The moment <laughs> in Civil War is exactly, is exactly that of like, I, I, I mean, my toes curl every time I hear that line. Oh, it's like that really old movie. And then in this film, he's building a bloody Death Star. I was just like, gonna, I saw somebody fair, say that on Twitter. Yeah. This did happen after Civil War. So, like, maybe he was like, oh, I'm going to go and watch those those Star Wars, you know, the really old Star yeah. Wars films now. But no, like, is yeah, it was a it was a bad reference in Civil War, and it's similar here. Like, mm. we get it, we know. Mm. This is the point. It's like if you if you were going to care about the reference, it's iconic enough that you'd get it without the screen. If you're not going to get the reference, the screen is not going to help you get it. So what's the point of it being there? Yeah. Mm. So didn't like that, but yeah, I would say generally, I liked the high school stuff. I really liked some of like the background characters. I liked. I thought the the um, the Asian kid who. Is who pops up and says we're playing chess, and then is in the bathroom <laughs> in the at the bathroom. end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. He he was wonderful. I really like. Um, is it Michael Barbieri? I think who plays one of the uh, one of the like mathlete characters. Um, the the like yeah, Michael Barbieri, who was in a film called Little Men last year. Um, he's also got a small role in the Dark Tower. I thought he was. I thought he was really fun. Um, I. I thought that 
take on Flash was interesting, uh, but kind of most of the kids who were quote unquote main cast, I kind of, I, I just wanted, I wanted more from them or I wanted more of Peter's relationship with them. Um, well, it's, I mean, I mean the, it's, the Michelle stuff is so frustrating because every, <laughs> Every second that Zendaya's on screen, you're like, oh, that girl is a star. She's going to be huge. Like, she's just <laughs> captivating. You want, you want to be watching her. And like, every, every 20 minutes, like, she'll have like a, she'll briefly be in like background of a shot and you'll go, oh, she's back. Oh, and she's gone. Um, <laughs> I'm, I've, I've got, I've got the Wikipedia page for the film open to, you know, to remind of names of people who are in it and stuff. And I'm fairly certain that the paragraph talking about Michelle, is longer than all of the dialogue that she gets in the film put together. <laughs> that's that's because she just turns up to do like stinging one-liners. Mm. Well, it's like also most of her bits aren't even really directly interacting with Peter or the plot. Like no. probably her most memorable bit of the film is when they're all up at the monument and she just has a, an aside conversation with the teacher. Um, I like that teacher, <laughs> by the way. Slaves. It's um, yeah. uh, what's his name, Martin Starr. Uh, yes. No, not my, uh, no, that's, uh, no, it is, yeah. It's Martin um, Star, yeah. I, Martin I have Star, a theory yeah. about Martin Star in this movie. Go on. Um, so I, as we'll get to with the Marvel timelines, I rewatched this week Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk. Um, uh, yeah. And Martin Star pops up in The Incredible Hulk as Amadeus Cho. Amadeus Cho. Um, now I'm just saying, uh, well, there's also, um, it's uh, Principal Marita is played by Kenneth Choi, um, who, if you look in his um, office, there is pictures on the wall of a, a guy who looks remarkably like him in an army uniform because he previously played one of the Howling Commandos in Captain America. Um, and so I think the idea is here that he is like grandson of the Howling Commando. Now, I think Martin Starr is also playing the same character and a guy who... In the intervening, well, ooh, 10 years, maybe 13 years, who knows? I don't know. But in the intervening years between The Incredible Hulk and this, this really smart guy decided to become a science teacher. <laughs> and Professor Cho was teaching in a school where a kid died on a school trip and he had to change his name and get a new identity. And that's how he's turned up at this school with a new name. Do you like it? Fan theories. You should have put that one in the article. <laughs> I only came up with it afterwards, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it's not as good as the theory that Tony Stark murdered Rhodey and then hired an actor to take his place, <laughs> which I'm I'm now treating that as canon, basically. <laughs> Next time, baby. <laughs> um, of the teachers, I, I, I in fact I enjoyed. I mean, the casting was, was really nice for, for a lot of the teachers. They all felt quite authentic. Um, I thought Hannibal Buress, who is like one of the best comedians working right now, was like just perfect in his, in his small little moments. And I kind of, I kind of wanted more of them. And I think what's, what surprised me about this film, which I think it is actually in sharp contrast to uh, mostly other Spider-Man movies was quite how high a proportion of the film is spent with Peter Parker in costume as Spider-Man. Like it felt mm. like it felt like it just whenever they could have him in the costume, even if he was like going to be sitting around in his room, that like that, that mask and that costume was, were, were always there. And did you, did you feel like you wanted more of the film to be about him as Peter than about him as Spider-Man? Because I wouldn't have expected yeah. that going into a Spider-Man film, but this mm. one, 
I would every time like it left the school stuff behind to go and have him be Spider Man. I was a bit ah, and I didn't expect that to be the case. But yeah, I, 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 I would like more they of the film have, to be set. They at should have played it a bit more tightly, like around the school. Like I think, especially having him go off to Washington or whatever, like that. Once mm. he leaves those characters at, at the hotel, like you're. And he's off talking with like some computer AI. That was the point of the film where it felt least like Spider-Man to me. As soon as they got back to New York, I was like, okay, we're back in, back in action. But that whole excursion. And yeah, and the, kind of sucked the energy out of everything. The, the AI, cause there's, there's nice stuff in that bit. And like the, the, you know, the bit where he's locked in the, um, the storage thing. There are, there are nice moments, but you know, I, Karen. I, yeah, I, I like the stuff with Karen. Um, I don't know Suit why lady. he called her Karen. They, they should have used I, a, a, a reference name. No, I um, think they called her Karen specifically because it wasn't a reference. <laughs> but like, they just picked a name that meant as little as possible to nerds. Yeah, I mean, but as much as I enjoyed that stuff in and of itself, it's so not Spider-Man. You mm-hmm. can't have Spider-Man constantly talking to an AI companion in his costume. It's yeah. just not Spider-Man. Um, and I, I'll forgive it if it doesn't come back again, but the film, you know, given that he get, see, I, th- I actually thought at the end of the film, he was going to be given a new costume that was a different, slightly different design. I was a bit disappointed that it wasn't because I don't like the black bits all over the costume. Uh, I thought he was going to get basically a costume without all the gadgets, but that was that design. Yeah. And that too. would make sense. That would, I that mean, would make sense for what happens. Maybe, maybe he does because we don't really know I was exactly say, what his costume think- is at the end. I think they um, play it ambiguously because they yeah. don't know whether they want all the gadgets in the next one. But I, I don't think you can long term have a version of Spider Man that has all yeah. those gadgets because I it, will just, be, it just isn't Spider Man. I will be very surprised if Karen is in the follow up films. And and you know, literally the whole point is it's that line of dialogue again from the trailers where Tony says to him, If you're nothing without the suit, you shouldn't have it. He then spends the rest of the film proving that he isn't nothing without the suit. He succeeds without the suit. Therefore, <laughs> he doesn't need it. So, you know, don't give him it. Um, yeah, but at least, but don't make him play around in his PJs. Well, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he needs to have a proper looking Spider-Man costume, but yeah, he just, he doesn't need an, as I say, I, I liked the conversations and I liked some of the gags they got out of it, but it only works as a one-off thing. It, I mean, I kind of think that, some uh, of, some of that stuff should have been Ned and some of it should have just not been like the, the thing where he's like, Oh, you're the only one I can talk to. And it's like, <laughs> well, you're not the only yeah. one. Like, <laughs> you've, you've got, got a best friend, friend who yeah. knows that you're Spider-Man. And like, yeah. you can argue that maybe Spider-Man shouldn't have anyone he can confide in, and that's certainly a valid choice, because like one of the problems with him having a girlfriend-slash-wife who knew he was Spider-Man and sort of helped him out was that like it takes the pressure off, and that ruins mm. the tension between his personal life and his, his Spider-Man life. But this is, this is a Spider-Man, this is a Spider-Man who's being MCU-ified here, mm. and... And also Miles Morales-ified. Um. Well, yeah, um, but he's a, he's a Spider-Man who's going to be known to be Spider-Man by his best friend and his aunt and all of his fellow superheroes, presumably, <laughs> or at least because of Tony Stark and, the, you know, his support for the Sokovia Accords would uh, lead you to believe <laughs> that he's not going to hide Peter's identity from from any relevant authorities. Um and also a villain who is now trapped, who is now on the raft with lots of other villains, um, which is where Captain America should be if he hadn't have escaped. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, you, I, I don't think, 
I think that the films have done all right. Peter had a secret identity. Peter was the secret identity, but it maybe won't be. And I don't know about you guys. I get the impression that Michelle absolutely knows that he's Spider-Man. Like she's, but she like the the film is constantly pointing out that she knows like that she's mm. she knows that he's not that he's quit these certain clubs and she knows that he's doing this and I always got the like where are you going Peter like I I thought that that was her saying like uh, like just poking fun at him like she she knows what's going on she's uh, she, I think she, I kind of think that was a more jab at the fans at the audience going like ah does she know like no she's just messing with him like she doesn't know. I think she's figured it out. Yeah. yeah. And also, because, like, if you know that Spider-Man is most... It's the old problem of when you send a comic book character off to another city. And this is why they, they shouldn't have done the Washington stuff. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, Spider-Man yeah, just yeah. happened to be in Washington. Mm-hmm. Falls apart. Especially a character who has already been shown to be so specifically localized to that well, area. Well, fa- fair play to, to the movie, area. though. It did yeah. it did call it out, and that was one of the things that helped. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tombs to figure out. But that the, he was the question is why it didn't help everyone else figure exactly. out who was Spider Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think we're I, probably I th- heading in a direction where the secret identity doesn't doesn't become a thing no 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 because you can't you can't do spider-man without a secret identity like not in any long-term way mm. like well well he's gonna die after the after his five movie arc anyway to be replaced by <laughs> miles morales so i wouldn't worry about it miles morales who is mentioned in this movie yes um seb you're gonna like this i pointed out the uh miles morales references to james after the film who hadn't spotted them i i had not spotted the i i didn't somebody pointed it out to me on twitter i came out and i said (laughs) i really really hope that uh prowler becomes a major recurring character in these films because just in that one scene he is wonderful i mean who doesn't love donald glover Glover's just the best but i i i think i was so enjoying that scene i missed the I, i knew that he'd said i have a nephew and it, I just, yeah, I too. just didn't click with it the at thing all is, until someone. Like the reason it, it didn't click with me is because I was going, "Oh, it's the Prowler, it's Hobie Brown." It's not Hobie Brown. It's Aaron Davis. It's Aaron Davis because he's the ultimate version. Yeah. Yep. Except yeah. character-wise, he absolutely is Hobie Brown. He's not Aaron <laughs> Davis. Like Aaron yeah. Davis is an evil shit. Whereas, like that personality and that obvious character arc is mm-hmm. absolutely Hobie Brown. Well, yeah, especially um, because Hobie Brown becomes a sort of heroic figure by the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not even like, not even by the end, like pretty much straight away. The whole the whole point is that he's he's set up as he's he's basically a black Spider-Man. He's a teenager but in a difficult you know, difficult situation mm-hmm. and basically because because he's a black teenager in New York, the only option open to him ends up being crime, but when he he's kind of set on the right path by Spider-Man and becomes a good guy. Like yep. it's you know, okay, that that sounds really patronising. Now that I've put it that you know, white guy saving the black <laughs> it was from, it was like the eighties, but <laughs> but point is, yeah, their heart was in the right place. But either way, it's a good arc, and you can already see that character moving along that arc. So yeah, mm-hmm. well, well, but you don't you don't need him to fully realise that arc. All you need him to do is to be like, oh hey, I have a nephew that I care about, and maybe that this nephew has has. Uh, yeah, but you don't the, want him to the, serve the just as an introduction to to the nephew because you you want you want him to be around a lot because yeah, yeah, I think you I bring mean, him back as a villain in in a in a later say, movie. If, if anything is a problem with him being Aaron Davis other than Hobie Brown, like it's that he has to be evil for Miles Morales to work. So true. Um, but so if you if you look on the screen on that when 
when Peter's doing the identifica- identification of him. So yeah, it says, it says, aka the Prowler. Cause I don't think he gets mentioned as the Prowler by name, does he? It just shows up on screen. No, although there is a bit where they, he's talking about the weaponry that I caught the second time around where they say something like, oh, we've got claws that can climb or something. And he's interested in that. Mm. Oh, okay. That's his thing, is it? That's one of the Prowler's things, yeah. Yeah. And, th- and then the other thing I noticed was that, uh, his alias is underneath the, pr- underneath the Prowler, he goes by the name of, uh, Brian Pincelli. And it's, it's, it's Pincelli, but I, I wonder whether that was a typo and they meant it to be Brian Pincelli. <laughs> I it was just that as well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I, I thought was a, a, well, um, so Sarah Pacelli gets thanks in the, um, closing credit. I was, I always find it interesting on these films seeing which creators do and don't get name checks at the end. Yeah. Dwayne McDuffie um, was an interesting one. Yeah. Um, and, and Bendis and Pacelli are as well. Um, mm-hmm. but there, there were fewer than I would have thought on a Spider-Man film, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what would McDuffie have been for? Uh, uh, I couldn't figure it out. I wonder maybe if he oh. did the original Hobie Brown stuff. And, um, uh, no, that wasn't him, but was it, it's damage control. He created damage control. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. I've got those comics as well. Which was That's a surprising, um, I mean, I know <laughs> that they're doing damage control, but it was a quite surprising sudden insertion into the mythos of them there. I mean, they're not doing damage control anymore, like the pilot got oh, passed on. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's why, that's why they're in this film. Yeah. Because uh. they're not being used elsewhere. But it, interesting that they're owned by Tony Stark in the film as well. Like, I didn't yeah. fully appreciate that. Uh, they're a task force that's been, like, set up by Tony in, like, in... It's a good yeah, yeah, yeah. association but with the government. Like, yeah. part, of, part of the Vulture's, like, upset is that Tony Stark is making money cleaning up the messes he creates. Which is an entirely legitimate criticism, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and And it's the basis of damage control in the comics is that it's owned by or set up by Wilson Fisk and Tony Stark. Oh, cool. Because, like, they can make money off the battles between their respective camps. I, I, um, well, and the, and the other wrinkle with the Vulture is that him saying, you know, like, I'm making money by selling weapons. How do you think your pal Tony Stark made all this money? <laughs> and it's, that's yeah. what I mean about the, the quite, the, the nice, when, when Michael Keaton is delivering that monologue, you buy that, you buy the, you buy the kind of the motivations for that character, but the entire scene is him falling into outright villainy and trying to murder a teenage boy. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's, I, I thought it's, it's the, it was a really nice balance for that character of, yeah, I get him and I kind of agree. Oh, but, oh, but yes, he is an evil shit. We do, <laughs> we do need to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think Keaton does a good job. I mean, I'm, I don't think Keaton's the most versatile actor in the world, but I think this is a, a part that was well written for him because he, he t- didn't he turn it down a couple of times? It like it wasn't going to happen with Keaton, and they I think they I just definitely kept remember. Yeah, I remember us being excited about it, and then it fell through, and then it was on again. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's let's pivot back to um, Zendaya, and what did you actually think about the MJ reveal? It felt very John Harrison to me. Yeah, I yeah. would not have bothered with that reveal. I think it like it doesn't really add anything. It's just going to upset people. Like Spider Man as a character has enough love interest that she could have been anyone. Like, Especially you given you don't that have they've... to say she's the surrogate MJ. Like she's basically uh, Michelle Gonzalez. I know, oh, um, 
from, was his re- who was his roommate? His roommate, yeah, from uh, the slot from, room, Michelle. Yeah. yeah, Michelle Gonzalez, I think. That was a like a specu- speculation yeah. when she was announced as being Michelle. Like, could it be her? I mean, I thought I thought it was the case just from what we saw of her in the trailers and and pre publicity, and definitely the case after coming out. Personality wise, she's absolutely a combination of Ultimate Mary Jane and Ultimate Gwen Stacy. I mean, how much Ultimate Mary Jane is there even? Um, I guess just the thing of being smart, being smart and I a guess. friend of Peter's from the world. But everyone in this film is thing. smart because well, he, yeah. he's in special science school. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, she's she's having, just the smartest, I guess. Like, Michelle Gonzalez was a character who was really, like, spiky and adversarial with Peter, but also they were kind of into each other. Were they? See, I didn't remember much going on with Michelle. I mean, they had sex at least <laughs> once. Did they? I mean, the, the, yeah. the, so the MJ thing here, though, is shorthand for this is the love interest. Mm. Pe- Pe- Peter doesn't know it yet, but yeah. this is the love interest, and you as an audience have to have to wait for that. And I think it it makes I, I kind of like what they're doing, but by not actually exploring that love interest in this film. Uh, but I also think it kind of causes some structural problems as well, well because it it points everything towards it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's. I think what what I like is that it works on kind of like a relatable teenage level of like, yeah, you have the crush on the the pretty girl um, who is the most popular and whatever, and uh, do you, do you actually have anything in common? And like, I, so it's like it's it's a teenage crush, and maybe that the girl who would actually be perfect for you, you're, you're not you're not noticing, and she's not noticing you just because you know you're both kind of the awkward outside kids. So I, I so yeah, I, I kind of liked it there, but I think then the the idea of Peter balancing his personal life and being Spider Man. That's why I thought it never felt like a big sacrifice for him to run off to be Spider-Man because, like, it, it the the romance wasn't. It never felt that important. It was a it was a teenage crush. It was like, oh, she's pretty and she's nice and she's smart, and I kind of stammer a bit when I'm talking to her. But we haven't had a conversation where we've actually. <laughs> like, they ne- they like, never have a conversation, do they? Like they exchange a few lines a few times not that means anything no it's weird because in the early part of the film it sort of implies that they don't know each other that well or even that she doesn't really know that he exists but then as it goes on it sort of acts like there is more of a backstory because they know each other through the um debate club whatever it's called Um, and i think the other thing is like it never feels like in in terms of his school life and his and, and that kind of life, it never really feels that running off to be Spider-Man costs him anything or, or, or like, damages any relationships. Like, Genki never feels let down or disappointed by anything that Peter does. Um, Liz... I mean, well, the thing is, he forgives, does... Liz forgives him not appearing at the <laughs> at the thing immediately. She doesn't care to the point that, like... She's gonna, she's gonna, she's happily gonna go to homecoming with him. And the only point in the movie where Peter does seem just miserable and dejected is that sequence before he asks Liz to homecoming, where he's had his suit taken away and he doesn't get to be Spider Man anymore and he just has to go to school and hang out with his friends. Yeah, I mean, well, this is, this is something that I think the second, like, it was a problem I had the first time I watched it and the second time I watched it, I was like, actually, this is a film about Peter realising that being a superhero isn't 
the be all and end all. Like he he wants to be an Avenger, but he knows he's not ready for it, and he's got to do more with himself. Whatever. Like the first time I watched it, I agree with everything you said, and the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, well, this was deliberate. Like he he spends the entire film. the The arc of the film is. Peter realizes being a superhero isn't the only thing he should be doing. And like, he doesn't get to that point until the end. Like, I, there are some things I have a problem with, like, but what, about, what gets, what gets him to that point? What gets him to that point is just seeing his life unravel in pursuit of Adrian Toomes. Like, I agree, it's not... I don't think it... I, I, like I say, I don't, I don't ever feel like his personal life does suffer. It's just that he doesn't take any joy from it. Well, I think... I don't know. <laughs> like, it does suffer because, you know, in the end, his girlfriend hates him and leaves. And, like, he's upset by that. Like, it's not, you know, he hasn't lost his one true love or anything, but it sucks a bit. Uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 even in their kind of, like, final encounter, I was like... Why is Liz even still talking to him after he did one of the cruelest things a, a teenager can do to one of the others? Which yeah, he does. Go. He treats her very poorly, and they don't really go with, with how poorly do they? Hmm. They gloss over that. I should. I should say. I do. I do like the. I do like the way the teenage girl characters in this film are written, in that they are smart and they have lives outside of. <laughs> their relationships to the male characters and the boys, yeah, and like I think, I think setting it at this school, like because like Liz is, uh, I like how like focused she is on her future and how driven she is and how like, like I, it was the lines that we she's like, oh, yo, you really care about this, don't you? And she's like, yeah, of course I care about it. It's our future. Um, Although, and like, I, I like, I like all like that the, kind of stuff. Liz is maybe the least convincing teenager in a movie since Stockard Channing. Like Laura <laughs> Harry is like twenty-seven or something. Like it's like, and she's visibly, clearly like ten years older than Peter because she's, she's Tom Holland looks young for his age. She's a senior, <laughs> a senior in a, a graduate student, like. yeah, like a pensioner. <laughs> As a criticism, I think that sort of works because, like, the point is she's super attractive and you know, unattainably so. So, like, it kind of works to have a 27-year-old or whatever playing that role. Except not mm. unattainably so, because actually, like, all he has to do is go, oh, yeah, I actually uh, quite like you. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know. And it's like, oh, that's it. Yeah, but the point, like, she likes him back and he doesn't know. Yeah. And I mean, he, she's he basically, just to fuck it up. But. She's basically playing a Molly Ringwald character, isn't she? Like, that's the... Yeah. Um... While we're on the subject of um, Peter Parker love interests, because this film does actually have a few of them, because Betty Brant's in there as well mm-hmm. um, as a high school TV <laughs> looking, it's like, looking a lot like Gwen Stacy. <laughs> but yeah, just I, I wonder if they've just done that as an Easter egg, or um, if they're actually going to make anything of the character, or if they're going to do what the Raimi films did in terms of completely wasting um, Elizabeth Banks yeah. and just never quite doing anything with the character. I mean that. One thing that I quite appreciate about this version of Betty Brant is that she gets some good, like, punchline slash reaction shots. Like, it's rare to see the girl getting the laughs. Mm. I like to see F. Murray kill, uh, scene. With, the, <laughs> with them just ca- casually chatting on the bleachers. I thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that. I, 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 I'm 
certainly I thought she was fine in kind of the, her amount of screen time. I certainly didn't go. I really hope she is a romantic interest with Peter or that she oh, no, has I mean, a much bigger part. Yeah, of the I don't film. mean in terms of the character as they are in the film. I just mean in terms of like the character of Betty Brandt has already, you know, been somewhat underserved by, by Spider-Man yeah. films. So not to be um, honest, underserved Especially because Elizabeth well, Banks but... is, has like all the... Exactly, like, yeah. <laughs> like rapport and charisma that... Kirsten Dunst just doesn't. Yeah. Well, we yeah we went over yeah, that. Yeah, we've we? we've covered that before, but <laughs> yeah, we're going to disagree about another Spider-Man thing. Um, speaking of <laughs> underserved female think characters, Elizabeth though, Banks is amazing. No, I'm saying that you guys are really mean to Kirsten Dunst. She's wonderful in those movies. Okay. The world is wrong about Kirsten Dunst <laughs> in the Spider-Man films, and I'm <laughs> she's right. Not, she's but not here's, listening, Joe. Here's something. Here's something where I uh, where I was wrong. Um, and I think it was, I, I think it was James. It could have been both of you, but, um, <sighs> young, hot May Parker doesn't work. Yep. Nailed really, it. Really, really doesn't work. Um, I, that, I like Marisa Tomei. I like her when she's on screen in this film, but the film doesn't do anything with her. Isn't interested in the Peter May relationship. Doesn't, sell you on the facts of Peter being kind of protective over his aunt or anything like that. And I get that the young hot Aunt May is a joke and I think a lechy character like Tony Stark yeah, calling they, it oh. out once or twice is funny. I didn't need to spend every scene she was on screen with a joke about how she was hot. Like, and several that she wasn't on screen. Yeah, it's mm. so it's so reductive and it's so disappointing for that character. And I think, I think the potential's there with Marisa Tomei to do some of the good Aunt May stuff, but. Well, there was more of it in Civil War. Like, I, 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 yeah. I think the way they played it in Civil War worked really well. But here, yeah. I think. And I don't, I don't want her to know she's, I didn't want her to know I that mean, he was Spider-Man. I, I, I don't mind them doing that. There's a couple of reasons why I think that's good. One, because it's fucking hilarious at the end. <laughs> it really is. Um, and two, because the films haven't done it before. It's, yeah. it's an angle on Spider-Man yeah, that has been done in the comics, but that hasn't been done in the films and could be interesting to explore. So I don't mind that because it is doing something different the way you've had, you know, two series of films where she's always agonizingly close to finding out, but doesn't. Um, but I do totally, I'm pretty sure, James, you did say this as a specific criticism that, um, it, Peter needs to worry about May finding out because the shot could kill her basically because she's a frail old woman um and i don't i don't think necessarily that may has to be a frail old woman i think actually the i mean ultimate did it really well and i think the more recent comics have sort of slightly de-aged her and, and struck a balance quite well um and, and uh, ultimate Aunt may is is a really good character and you know is a good template to follow but him being worried about her finding out isn't that convincing if there aren't any stakes other than she'll be really annoyed at me and stop me from being Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I, th- I think you need bigger stakes. I think it needs to be a really big deal. If she finds out it's terrible and, and you know, could have terrible yeah, consequences. Like, terrible for her. Like you have yeah. to believe he's lying to her to protect her. Otherwise it yeah. doesn't like, otherwise it's selfish. Exactly. The power responsibility dynamic of the, um, Raimi Spider-Man films is very much about like, if you kind of, if you bring these people into your life, then you put them in, in, in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and certainly knowing that he's Spider-Man is one of the ways that that can happen. That although a thing that I've always that's not liked, something that you feel in this film. A thing that I've always liked the idea of is that Peter worries so much about May finding out. And actually, secretly, she's known all along, which, I mean, I'm yeah, sure we yeah. discussed this on Spider-Man 2, that's <laughs> the, by the end. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of Spider-Man 2, she definitely knows, if not by the Mm. end of the first one. Definitely the second one. And again, I'm sure I referenced it and it may even have... Did I even get you to read it? Or if not, I will in future. But Amazing Spider-Man 400, <laughs> where she dies, and before she dies, she tells him that yes, she's known you, all yeah. along. Um, you know, that's that really works, but, um, you know, it only Speaking works of, if um, he's been worried and trying to protect her from it all this time, and then it's ironic that he's been doing so for no good reason. Speaking of comics that you made me read previously that are referenced in this movie, uh, the the yes. first fight with the vulture, that's a direct oh. thing with Peter stuck under the um with yeah, Peter stuck it, under the rubble trying say, to push his way out. Oh yeah, sorry, when you said first fight with the vulture, I thought you meant in the comics. Yeah, first fight with the vulture in this film, which is from the Master Planner saga. I really liked that they did that. <laughs> uh I mm. you know. Alright, you may shrug, but I really liked that they did it. Because it's such an iconic moment. Actually the film's they have kind. Does, doesn't Spider-Man three touch? I'm sure one of them does a slight homage to it at some point, but this was full on. Um, yeah. And yeah. Although I like, I it, bristled a bit when they did that because it's like they took this iconic moment from the comics and stripped it of all meaning. Hmm. Like, yeah, because the point, in the comics, yeah. he's trying to escape to save Aunt May. In, here he's trying to escape in to this. stop him from stealing a thing. Well, yeah, like it just it doesn't it doesn't work for well, him. Well, and like, to stop summon... himself from dying. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he will but... die if he's stuck there. I think that'll be pretty bad for Aunt May. I mean, he's... it's more like in that scene. The th- it's more that he has to get back no, to Aunt May. Yeah. yeah, really quickly. Whereas in, you... whereas in this, it was like oh, he has to be a superhero, so he needs to you know transform. You know, he needs to realise his potential as a superhero, and it's like, it's not... I think if you're going to rip off a scene that directly, you have to 
get the context right, and I don't think they did. Also, it contains the worst moment in the film where he looks into the reflection and sees a really, really horribly executed reflection of himself with half his face and half the Spider-Man mask. And then they actually do echoey voiceover of Tony Stark saying, Ooh. if you're nothing without the suit. Uh, it's the, that line is, that line is not, it has not landed the way it needs to, to be, to be brought back up in that moment. It looks clunky. It made me cringe when they actually did the voiceover. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I would say by far and away the worst moment in the film. It's I like, really, really hated it. It's like Uncle Ben always said, if you're nothing without the suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Are, are uh, either of you, were either of you surprised that we didn't get a flashback to a surprise casting of an Uncle Ben? I wasn't, I wouldn't say I'm surprised at that. I'm surprised we didn't get any version of the origin because I spent the whole film waiting for them to like mm. do a pricey of it or maybe make a yeah. joke about like, oh, we don't need to hear that again, Peter or whatever. Like, well, no, they did. Yeah, they, because they, 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 there was that joke. There's the scene with Ganky. There is Ganky's having, asking him. Yeah, he says like, Ganky's oh, I got bit by a spider. Did, he, did and, he get back? But yeah, it's, and, and the idea is that, the, that that is the jokey callback to like, what's the origin? I got bit by a spider. No, I know you might want to know, but I'm bored of telling this story. Like, it, it's fine. It it happened. Now I've got these powers. We don't need to get into it. And I did I find that it interesting perfect. that that's the first time it's even stated that that this version of Peter Parker was bitten by a spider. Like, I'm pretty sure that do they ever? I'm sure they don't reference it in Civil War, or do they? Not not that I remember anyway. So but it doesn't. It, it doesn't quite matter a because they're away way to you know. Get but they're right. Down. Like it's exactly they've they've heard the complaints. Mm. Everyone watching a Spider-Man movie knows the Spider-Man origin story. We've seen it twice on screen in the past fifteen years. We don't need to see it again. And the film does not suffer in any way from not having any of that stuff. I, I don't think it. I don't think it suffers in any way from not having Uncle Ben. I think like that stuff is all in your head when you're watching a Spider-Man movie. You know that stuff exists. You know that's part of that character. As you said. You know there is some point in the past where a, a, a guy who was Uncle Ben sat Peter down and says, "With great power must come great responsibility," and that character has has lived whatever two years since that point and is now here. Okay, can, I, can I just point out what an effect though. we've 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 had on you over the course of the life of this podcast <laughs> that you correctly quoted it that you did that deliberately. Yeah. You you said "must come, not comes," yeah. and. I know you did that deliberately. <laughs> like, Nailed it. I kind of disagree because there are tons of bits in this film where I was like, I wonder when Peter's going to learn that with great power comes great responsibility because he spends the whole film being like, I'm going to be a superhero and I don't care who gets caught in the crossfire. Like, the, you know, the, his deli shop get, like his mate's deli shop gets blown up and his reaction isn't like, oh fuck, why did I engage those guys in a massive superhero fight in the middle of a bank? Like, he crashes a plane I, and he doesn't seem to care that he crashed a plane. I'll be honest, my, my, the, the moments that I disliked most in this film was, were Peter's casual disregard for the destruction of property. I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I, 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 you, so you want to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and we see that in, in the kind of the helping give directions and the, and, you know, saving cats and whatever. Um, but like when he's running over the roofs and the tiles falling off and he's knocking over hedges and like I just I was like, yeah, Peter, come on, man! And the like, thing is, it, like, there's no, there was like it, for 
normal dude having like a load of roof damage could be a like a pretty bad thing that happens in your week. Like, Don't do that to people. The big thing is that the second, like in the second act, the big thing is he fucks up so bad he almost kills an entire ferry load of people, and his reaction isn't like maybe with maybe I should be more responsible. It's I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Like it's it's, it's, it's treated power. it's treated as a heroic moment that he like gets back on the horse. Whereas actually, he screwed up so badly he needs to learn the lesson, and I feel like there should have been a change in approach or something. I so I again in terms of like the the background to the character, then I think that Peter has been sat sat down and told with great power must come great responsibility. I don't think he has learnt it yet, and I think the film. I don't think he's learnt it by the end of the film properly either. Um, Well, this is kind of what I mean in that I wanted it slash expected it to have the shape of the origin and i think even if they weren't going to do the bit by a spider saving uncle ben thing because i in fact iron man even says to him something like you know uh what it's where he's giving him like the speech after the very thing and he says like Mm. people get hurt that's on you you get hurt that's on me or whatever and it's like he that was the moment that where I because... thought he was going to pull out the line. He was yeah, gonna, exactly. He was going to say, "Yeah, somebody." That was where I thought we were going to get a flashback, like, basically. And without <laughs> having, Tony that without having that. having any version of the origin on screen, like Peter never learns that lesson, and it's like it's a, it's okay to have it as sort of assumed background, but within the text of the movie, it doesn't work to not have that lesson in there in some way. Yes, yeah, so that that's where I would agree. I think that that should have been part of this film. Yeah, more actively part of this film, uh, but I don't agree that it needed any more origin stuff. I just think you just add that you have the <laughs> you have that in there because that's not like it's not like the the trudge is to watch a character go through an arc. Like the, the trudge is to be told to be given in, told information again that you've already, <laughs> you already heard. Two yeah, fair enough. I I mean yeah. I I definitely I. I'm not disagreeing with you at all that I, I certainly don't think it needed a telling of the origin at all. And I'm glad that it didn't have that. As I say, I just, I did find it interesting that it took that long to even reference him being bitten by a spider. And I, I it, it actually, their restraint in not having an uncle Ben in it is what surprised me. I'm not saying it needed an uncle Ben. I'm just saying that the temptation to have like, and well, for, for for my ideal casting, Tom Hanks suddenly turns up. Tom, it's a, Tom a, Hanks in my cameo. head, Seb. Every <laughs> time it's Tom Hanks, I can't uh, like. I'm, didn't, I'm, I'm, was like, that we I both came up with Tom Hanks? And, didn't we? Didn't we all? Yeah, several. Yeah. I think I, I I don't think I thought of it independently, but as soon as someone said it, and I'm sure you both did, that yeah, it's just perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just a, a a a big name like that kept under wraps to just show up briefly and do it. <laughs> um, I'm surprised they didn't do that. Uh, I, I think that that did show a bit of restraint. See, and actually, I'm I'm maybe a little disappointed that that we just didn't get that little moment. There's still um, time, but I don't there's, think it needed there's still it. Still time. Point. There's a difference I mean, between being disappointed something doesn't happen and thinking the film would have been better with it. One of the things I think about this film actually is that they specifically said like, let's not do anything we've done in the previous films. So like, that's why they spend so much time outside of Manhattan. That's why they don't do any version of the origin. Like, that's why he spends a lot of time at high school. Hmm. Like I think that's why they didn't include any iconic action. Yeah, <laughs> like, honestly, that's, the that's why he's got a different so love turgid. interest. Than, well, yeah, but like basically, they went let's let's do stuff with a character that hasn't been done before and actively avoid everything else, and that's why it feels slightly less iconic at times. 
because it's like you haven't got the iconic love interest and you haven't got the iconic like swinging down skyscrapers in Manhattan shots. No, in- instead you've got let's have Peter Parker like crashing on top of a plane, <laughs> which oh. like there was so in the first arc of um, Tom King's Batman, like. A, there's a big yes, set piece. It yeah, might even yeah. be in the first issue where Batman is, is standing it, on top of a plane that's about to crash, and it's, it's like, the entire first issue. Yeah, yeah, and it's played as such a big deal because it's like this isn't something that Batman usually does. This is Superman territory. This is Batman probably going to die because he's on top of a crashing plane, and the whole <laughs> issue is constructed around that. And then this film just has Spider-Man crash a plane with like no physical consequences whatsoever, <laughs> and it's just. That's not that's not a Spider-Man action scene. Although that's, it was, you know, I did find it interesting that an invisible plane flying through the air at one point has its turbine knocked out, and I was like, "Oh, Donnie Darko is in the Spider-Man <laughs> is in the MCU <laughs> canonically now." Of course, we don't know where the planes come from. It was well, invisible. I mean, that's, it was <laughs> that's another thing. Like the Raimi Raimi version of Spider-Man would have webbed that turbine up and not let it fall to the ground over a heavily populated urban area. <laughs> I think the idea. I think the idea is that they're over water at that point. I think. Yeah, but they don't establish that fully enough for me to think like, no, oh I mean, fuck, like to not think, oh fuck, that turbine is going to land on someone. For me, the biggest crime is like how visually uninteresting that is. There's one brief shot where you see the the Spider-Man costume has obviously gone over the masking cameras or whatever, and, mm-hmm. you, and the, the plane turns Spider-Man-y, um, which I thought, oh. Uh, but then the the rest of it was was just dire, and the fight on the so they're, they're on, are they on Coney Island? There is that the that's that where the they idea? crash in the end, yeah, yeah, and like it's just it's just a parade of nothingness throughout those two scenes. It's just ab- it's it's just CG fuckery that has like no place in this movie that is is grounded so much in and it's like a, and it's at Peter night. as a character, Which- yeah. Why is, and, the, and so much of the film is is at, in the daytime and in the in, and in the bright and it feels appropriate for mm. this version of Spider-Man that all of it's been in the daytime and then yeah it's it's just grim and and like I I get that the character moment is supposed to be that Spider-Man is in that scene he's not wanting to fight he's wanting to save the Vulture like at this point mm. at this point the the fight's over he just wants to save him. Which I think is a nice idea, and it's a nice idea for that character. Um, but it's the the scene fumbles in because because the actual the the visuals are so boring, and then and then it cuts away even before the shot of Spider Man pulling Michael Keaton out, which I think would have been a you know an, an opportunity to have a really nice iconic shot there. Like if nothing else, superheroes and planes, like it's been done, it's been done a lot. Even like even Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man Two had a plane crash situation in it. <laughs> like yeah, a yeah. bad one. We'll get to discussing that later. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> even that film, like Superman, Iron Man, they've all been fucking around on planes. <laughs> Shall we talk about um, about the MCU links in in this film? The actual the, the explicit stuff. And I mean, mostly, I think we should start off with the use of Tony Stark and Iron Man. I made a joke um, to James, <laughs> and we were sat with Michael Leader as well. We were watching the end credits, as you do with Marvel movies, waiting for the post-credit sting to arrive. 
and it came up on the credits, stand in for Robert Downey Jr. I was like, he really earned his paycheck on that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy must have been worked to death because I, and I, so he literally phones in one scene and I kind of, I love Robert Downey Jr. He is, he is as much as this character feels like pretty much him a lot of the time. And I, I said, I thought he was, astonishingly good in Civil War. Like, he he mm-hmm. was in, incredible in Civil War. He, he His performance here just seems kind of like, huh, yeah, fine. Um, Picking up the page. Uh, like, I get it, ang- angry moments, but mostly but mostly it's the same kind of, the same patter. And um, I think the amount they use Iron Man is perfect. Uh, like, I don't... I, I, it was exactly as I predicted based on the trailers. They're showing every single Iron Man shot and then and some that aren't that even in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I was, I was a little bit disappointed. Just you, in... The only, the only time that it feels like it works for me is when they finally pack Spider-Man off and it's Happy and Pepper and Tony talking. Oh. And you're like, Oh, it's those guys, those guys yeah. from that other movie. That's really good. But, well, um, it, can it's we talk about we, worth, um, the shared joy that we must have had yes. between the three of us watching this movie? Because <laughs> yeah. I said to James, I felt we're okay. We're at the Avengers building. We it's the end of the movie. We're at the Avengers building. The only MCU character really that well, there's the Captain America videos, but really it's just been Tony Stark so far. And I'm going. We're getting a big cameo. Is it going to be Black Widow? Are we going to see like just in a back room, like the entire Avengers team? I genuinely fighting? thought we might and see all of them like in a lineup waiting to welcome him or something. Yeah. And then instead, the door opens, and I went, "Oh, that's better." Yep. That's that's a lot better. Seb, you you more than any of us must have been absolutely thrilled in that moment. I was absolutely thrilled in that moment, less so when I thought about it afterwards. Um, but yeah, let, you know, the main thing, let's get out of the way. Yes, Pepper is back and it's great and I'm very, very happy. Um, mm. but like post civil war, like, do I really think it's the best thing for Pepper to be with Tony Stark? Especially given what a dick he was ah. in this film as well. <laughs> ah, come on. Um, no, I, why is he a dick? No, wait, come on. Why actually, is he a dick if in this anything, film? That's because Seb, <laughs> Seb has the wrong reading of civil war, remember? Ah uh, no, yes, but ah but- uh, no. See, Pepper's return, I believe, justifies uh, my reading of Civil War. In that Civil War happens while he's split up from Pepper, and he doesn't have her around to keep him on the right track. Now she's back, yeah, and he'll go back around to being by the a Steve goodie. Rogers idiot doing all no, the stuff. No, he's he's, he he's going to go back. He's he he's even. I'm sure loosely isn't there. There's a point where he mentions Steve, and it is in a sort of mildly positive way. Uh, yeah, no, and actually, uh, well, the, and the fact that he's working on a prototype shield for Captain yeah, America suggests it, that he's not written him off. As can, a, can we just bring up the other um, reference to Civil War, which is when um, Hannibal Buress is playing <laughs> the videos? Like, pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now, but what? <laughs> yeah. That joke yeah, of that. him standing on the wrong side of the video is probably my favourite yes. joke in the entire film. Oh, what, the, the bit where he, where he says, uh, and, and now teacher. my best friend, yeah. Mr. Blank. <laughs> now he is Mr. Blank. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, yeah, I, I really like that. I'm, I, I, so, so my, my reading of that because obviously um, we should, we're going to talk about the timeline confusion here, which is <laughs> very frustrating. But so as far as we know, this film takes place two months after Civil War or starts two months after Civil War, and you get the impression that maybe the film unfolds over a few months, uh, even less, maybe a couple of weeks. Doesn't feel like it's unfolding over a, a huge amount of time, does it? No. 
because like they're but they're preparing I, for the competition. I, then I was going to say I think it's reasonably it's over the course of like a term or a, do they call them semesters in America? I reckon it's yeah. Yes, yeah. Like so three, it's, it's two, a, three months. Yeah, yeah. So the opening title card says that this film takes place eight. Well, we <laughs> see that the film starts in the aftermath of the Battle of New York, where Toombs is uh, yeah. cleaning, uh, is, is, is doing working salvage uh, from the destruction that's been caused. Now, that is firmly set in place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe on, I think, May 4th or May 12th, 2012. May 4th, 2012, I believe. Mm-hmm. Because, like, that date has been dropped multiple times. Mm-hmm. And the idea has largely been, unless otherwise stated, that the films are kind of taking place in real time, i.e., like, yeah, whatever if the film's yeah. released in May 2016, it's probably taking place in May 2016. Yeah, I think. I think is it is it only Guardians that sort of is a well, bit no, of a fudge because they could be any time. Guardians oh. is explicitly Guardians Two, sorry, is explicitly oh, no. 2014, which and James Gunn said it's six months after Guardians, so those yeah. two are out of sequence when they're released. And I think what is it Thor and Iron Man Two take place like on consecutive days or something. Like they're also yeah, very close yeah. together. Phase Phase One is I think Phase One is all supposed yeah. to be a lot more because the they retconned um, Thor and, uh, sorry, Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. I mean, they originally took place in 2008, got retconned to 2010. Yeah. But yeah, definitely the, the, yeah. the firm date that's set in place is uh, the Avengers took place in May 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eight years after that would place this movie in 2020. Now, there are we, we can perhaps come up with a bunch of theories for, like, because I would like to believe based on it's so easy to fix. If that date is wrong, it's so easy to fix that. Like, if they've made a mistake, someone at some point spots that and goes, eight yeah. years, no. That's, like, the Avengers <laughs> yeah. The Avengers came n- out five years ago. That's three years out. There's no way that gets to release unless it's what they wanted to do. Hmm. And, and if this film starts only two months after Civil War, then this is earlier in the timeline even than that. So then, then now, so it's like three or four years out of date. So something funky is going on with the time. And I don't want to believe that they just made a mistake here. And I care too much about the continuity of the MCU <laughs> because they've gone so far out of their way to make everything make sense in the past that I kind of wonder whether that we're supposed to be questioning what's going on here timeline-wise. I mean, it, thinking about it, like... It's massive benefit of the doubt, but I, it, like, honestly, I'm I'm going back and going through all the previous movies and establishing the timeline because I think... <laughs> I think I think there might be some some time tomfoolery I mean, going on because we 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 did find it we did say the same thing during Doctor Strange didn't we that the timeline was a little bit confusing there that we we didn't fully get our heads around how that had unfolded. Mm-hmm. I mean, previously my position was like just don't think about it because they're not thinking about it. But actually, I wonder if maybe Avengers Four, Avengers Three, sorry, is going to pick up very close to this film. And possible, but that's out. But that's out next year in 2018. Well, yeah, but maybe then Avengers 4 will bring us to sort of very near future. Because Avengers 4 is 2019, right? Yes. So maybe Avengers 3 and 4 will happen very close together chronologically. And then 2020, like Spider-Man Homecoming 2 is going to take place immediately after Avengers 4. So they're kind of scrunching these movies up so that they're releasing them early now. And then the timeline will fit after Avengers four. But where? So where's that? When did the stuff push forward? Then did it? 
is there maybe a time gap in the MCU that we haven't realized? Is there maybe like, I, I don't know. And again, I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at these films and see whether maybe potentially like the Sokovia records actually like are supposed to be taking place in 2018 or something, whether, no, I it, think- whether, whether there's a gap because I, 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 some, 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 somewhere this has to make sense. Otherwise, I'm just, I, like, my brain will explode. I mean, I think if you, <laughs> at the moment, I think what they're saying is there is a four year gap between, uh, Civil War and this movie. No, because they say two months later. In the film, they say two months later. That's why it doesn't make sense. You, you can't just say this takes place four years after Civil War. It doesn't. And I think okay. that's why, I think that's why some of the, some of the, like the, my one qualm with the Pepper Potts thing was like, I buy that Tony would be in a better emotional place after Civil War, um, after kind of at least getting the resolution of after figuring out what happened to his okay. parents. So maybe Avengers, <laughs> Avengers 2 happens four years after Iron Man 3. Well, so, also. well, that's, I, 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 I'm going to go back and I'm going to look firm, uh, just at the movies, not at any stuff that's outside of there, but I'm going to look back and see whether there is a way to figure it out. Otherwise, do you want a fan theory? Come on. <laughs> Must we? <laughs> I mean, yes, please. I've spent my week making fun of fan theories and I've got one for you now. Uh, my fan theory is that this is not the main continuity no no go get to fuck get to fuck this that this as as you know we can tell by the existence of miles morales listeners listeners press mute now that's it shut the podcast down the podcast is done that's it this is the umcu this is not the mcu it's the ultimate (laughs) marvel cinematic universe no and what's going to happen is that during the infinity war shit it's all going to become one universe do you want me to it because I can enable no. you by saying that Tony Stark is wearing a, an ultimate Iron Man suit in this film. Oh, it's a different universe, you guys. <laughs> it's not. It's really not. No. I mean, basically, what I want to do is is to find a way where this makes sense. And if it if it's continuity errors, I think that is absolutely unforgivable when you're setting up this massive shared... And I, I can forgive tiny little inconsistencies here and there. Because, like, there's also a point that, like, Happy says something in this film about he's been carrying the engagement ring since 2008. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it should be 2010 if you're following actual MCU continuity or whatever, I think. But also, I thought that was, um, to get back to the actual scene, let's let's stop obsessing over how the timeline <laughs> But to, 20 minutes later. To, yeah, to, to, to get back to that actual scene with Pepper, I thought that that moment was, cause I re, I say I rewatched, uh, Iron Man this week. So I rewatched it between my two viewings of Spider-Man Homecoming. And the second time around, I was like, ah, oh, that's uh, like, that's just perfect for those two characters. Should I tell that's you? The way that, that, that's the way that Tony Stark would propose. I was going to say, Pepper. the thing I love most about that scene is that it ends with him like flipping the ring and disappearing into a door and you're like, did he propose? Is he really going to propose in the middle of a press conference? And you're like, of course he's going to because he's Tony Stark. And like, you don't yeah. need to see what happens. But next time Tony Stark shows up, there will be a question to be answered about his story. And I kind of mm. think from what Robert Downey Jr. has said, like he, 
because remember he fought for Gwyneth Paltrow to be in Avengers because he wanted to keep that story being advanced and like he's he's kind of protective of Tony having an arc when he shows up not just showing up to do cameos and I yeah. think that was his concession was we'll give you this little scene at the end where they advance the romance subplot of Tony and Stark I think, so that next time I, people have something to to think about because I think it made sense to for him and Pepper to be split in in uh, Civil War. Yeah, because he, be uh, th- he had to be throwing himself into the superhero life and concerns. And he had to not have yeah. his moral conscience there with him. No, I mean, the reason they got back together was because she was so impressed with how well he, how far he'd come without her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I genuinely think that, like, his his actions in that film, his trying to, his trying to reckon with his past sins... Is is and and like and and now in a position where he's actively mentoring a young superhero who you can tell he wants to be better than him. He wants Spider Man <laughs> to be a better hero than Iron Man <laughs> has ever been. That was, that I mean, be I, the subtext of is you. <laughs> I wanted to be like you. I want you to be better. I I would hmm. say that uh, the fact that a that he's making a, a new shield for Captain America and b that he wanted to add to the Avengers a masked, a full-face-masked character suggests <laughs> that he's changed his position on the Sokovia Accords and that's Ooh. why Pepper's taken he, him back. He knows Peter's identity, though. He wouldn't have offered him that place if he didn't. Yeah, but Peter's identity should be public under the Accords. No, that's no, why he's no, given him no, a full-face no, mask. Absolutely not. Yes. Absolutely not. Seb, you, you're thinking of the comics, not the movie. Even in the comics, it wasn't that it you should be public. You clearly weren't paying attention to Civil even, War. <laughs> even in the comics, it was never the argument that it should be public. It was that it should be known. And Peter's argument, slash masked hero's argument, was if you if the government knows, we're one hack away from everyone knowing. Like, that was always their argument. Not that everyone had to unmask. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. <laughs> Come back next week for Seven James literally fighting on the podcast. <laughs> that would be a disappointing <laughs> listen. Well, all, all I'll say is if Pepper was impressed by Tony's actions in Civil War, then I, I am no longer impressed with Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of your, your babe, uh, Captain America, um, the, the stuff in the movie was nice. I wish it hadn't been in the marketing. Um, but yeah. that post credit sting was my favourite since Iron Man three. Um the the just the gag at the end yeah. of Well actually yeah, I mean it, it's a shame that they uh did give it away in the marketing, but at least they held back the best jokes because not only do you have the post credits thing, which is fantastic, and I was I, I was in the fullest I've been in an actual paying screening for something for some time um, on, on Wednesday night, like it was a completely packed screening, and I think slightly more than half the people stayed to the end and that got a, about a 50-50 mixture of laughs and annoyance, uh, which I think <laughs> really? is probably what they were aiming for um, so, I mean, it, it was kind of mostly last, but there were definitely a few people that were like, oh, is that it? And it's like, well, yeah, that was a joke. But also, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the fact that the trailers had shown him being on the video, but the fact that the video had a really funny gag that we didn't see in the trailers was, yeah. See, Captain yeah, America um, is always the best thing about any film, no matter what <laughs> it turns out. Uh, he, he wasn't un- until last year. Um, the mid credit scene, uh, that, 
It, no, that guy's not going to be the villain, is he? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? He he won't be the villain, but I mean, it surprised me because I thought it seemed pretty clear that he'd been killed off during the boat scene <laughs> because he falls off the boat and gets hit by a car. Um, that's an interesting one because what they've done is they've taken the name of Matt Gargan, who's the original Scorpion, but the Scorpion, you know, is, and he was also Venom for a while, but the Scorpion, you know, being a bloke in a big green Scorpion suit, but they've otherwise basically taken the character and look of the ultimate version of the Scorpion, who is a, um, gang lord from Mexico. Um, but. He won't be the villain in the next film, but I would imagine. So he says something about getting together. He says something about getting together a team because they're on the raft, right? That's that's where they are. And he says something about getting together, like putting together a team of. So it's almost like almost sinister six-ish level. Yeah, he says, but like it feels so feels so low wattage. Well, Scorpion and Vulture should be in. A Sinister Six, shouldn't yeah, they? Cause he like, says, like, Six, he says I've got a crew of people who want to know, and it's like, well, you've got, if you've got the Vulture and the Scorpion and, and the, the Shocker, Shocker still out there. Like, yeah. those guys are Sinister Six level heroes. So, yeah. uh, I've got a question. Is the Kingpin still there? Or was he in Seagate? He was in Seagate, yeah. Ah, was he in Seagate? No, he was just in Rikers, wasn't he? Yeah, I forget. But the raft was, I mean, the raft was you was the one used in Civil War, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't think so that was the raft in the film. That was a more traditional prison. Yeah, I thought they were just in prison. I didn't think they were in the raft. Because the raft sure. has just got that big circular yeah, room. And the, the yeah, middle, of course, Seagate, Seagate is on the West Coast, so. I, I thought I'd read it was the raft somewhere. I think so, it's just, but, but I, I think I it's could, just Rikers. Yeah, so I don't know, maybe they're teasing a Sinister Six thing, um... Or maybe that maybe they don't know I, exactly I, where, where they're going in terms I of the actual like villain for the next film. I feel like it was more just a way of because you know when you had the when you had the vulture not be killed off, immediately the question that leapt out to me was, well, okay, what are you going to do now? Because you've got the supervillain who knows Peter's identity, and I think that scene was it wasn't them setting stuff up so much as it was them answering that question of well, what happens when he goes to prison? Will he not just tell everyone that Peter Parker's Spider-Man? Yeah. And the answer is no, he won't because he saved his life. So I was going to yeah. say, you can you can read it as he saved, like, because Peter saved his life, he's, you know, being honourable because they've already set up this idea that yeah. he, he will give concessions to Peter for, you know, looking yeah. after his daughter or whatever. So It just mm. doesn't really feel what the post-credit scenes normally really feel do, which is either scene, deliver no. a gag or or give you a tease of something to come. And so if the tease is the less significant part of the, of a sting, then that, that feels weird. Um, we should talk about what Kevin Feige was saying about this kind of five film art for Spider-Man though, because I think it is interesting because the next time we see Spider-Man will be in infinity war. He'll also be in whatever Avengers four is called, which we think might be infinity gauntlet. Um, and then his fifth film will be the first MCU film post, uh, well, post kind of the current status quo. There's nothing announced beyond that movie in terms of specific. We know certain films are going to be made, like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, um, but kind of like I, I think the idea is that like this is the end of the MCU as we know it in Avengers: Infinity War, and that kind of the you know maybe Tony Stark and Steve Rogers and Thor and Bruce Banner aren't around after that. So it's go- it's going to be interesting, isn't it, that this next solo movie is potentially going to exist 
separate from all of that. And then you're also going to have, by that point, you're going to have two potentially more spider related, <laughs> Spider-Man related films out there in the ether in Venom and Silver and Black. Are we? Yeah, no, they're getting made. A movie with Tom Holland, uh, sorry, sorry, with Tom Hardy um, playing Venom, they're making yeah. that movie. Venom, I, Venom I think, will happen. Black and Silver and Black, Black and Silver, whatever it's called, mm, less so. I I think I think they're both going ahead, but uh, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's it's something different to consider than just like oh, as as used to be the case. Oh, I wonder who will be the villain in the next Spider Man movie. Oh, it's that villain. That's interesting. I wonder what they're going to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you who um, it won't be, and that's Venom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but I mean, so there's there's lots of options open to them, and they've kind of like. You're right about them kind of consciously avoiding anything that we haven't seen before, and that extends to there is no mention of, like, despite all of these kids in his school, there's no Harry Osborn and there's no reference to Oscorp whatsoever. Although, didn't we get... Oscorp is definitely a thing, because there was a reference in Ant-Man, wasn't there? Was there? I seem to remember... I'd be very surprised. Mm. No, just like a... Wasn't there, like, an Oscorp product in Ant-Man? No. No, I think you might be thinking of them. They had that little thing that they might put Avengers Tower in Amazing Spider-Man 2 and then it all fell apart. No, I mean, I mean, because I, there was definitely, there was, maybe it was a rumour that there was going to be. Yeah, I'd be very uh, surprised if there was Oscorp in there. But because they, because in Ant-Man they reference Spider-Man, don't they? That was, by that time the deal had been done. Yeah, I do want so to point maybe, out. Maybe it was. I, I do want to point out Harry Osborn and Peter met at college, I believe, not high school. <laughs> Yeah, yeah in, that's, in, that's, in, that's, irre- that's irrelevant to this movie, isn't it? Because in, in, in Ultimate, they are at high school together, uh, and in the Raimi movies, they are. But yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing, well, the interesting—I mean, something going way back to something we said earlier on when we started talking about the the big twist—that um, obviously, the yeah, the villain being the girlfriend's father is not something that we've seen done with Spider-Man. But obviously, the the villain being the father of somebody important to the lead character is obviously a major part yeah. of Spider-Man lore. And I, mean, I feel like them doing that with this even further suggests that they will they won't necessarily go to the Osborns anytime soon. Mm-hmm. No, I don't uh, think Because so. otherwise it'd be retreading ground. Yeah. And for Sony, that allows them to make the Osborns potentially the, like, or Norman Osborn, the kind of central background figure again in the uh, <laughs> exp- expanded universe. Yeah, you could um, always do a Green Goblin that isn't Norman Osborn because um, go go with the Steve Ditko route rather than the Stan Lee route. <laughs> nah, <laughs> that oh, would no. be narratively unsatisfying. <laughs> but his Which, argument was um, that it was narratively unsatisfying to have it turn out to be Norman Osborn, <laughs> and he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I think one of the things that we often do on this podcast, um, is kind of, we don't talk an awful lot about like the thing that's obviously really good about a movie because it's just like we all, we all agree on it, but we should, we should at least take some time to talk about Tom Holland and how kind of effortless. I was thinking about 20 minutes ago. I was like, we, we, have we just taken for granted the fact that he's really good in this because (laughs) we've barely mentioned him at all. Um, so the the common refrain that I've seen is that uh, this maybe it's not the best Spider-Man movie because the first two Raimi's are so great, but that we found 
the best screen Peter Parker. And I love Tobey Maguire. I love Tobey Maguire, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man as a part of those movies. I agree that this, this Peter Parker just feels like a joy to be around and feels perfectly pitched for, for an MCU Spider-Man <laughs> and, and a 2017 Spider-Man. I was going to well. say, do you want me to be a killjoy? Cause like I was watching this going like, he's good. He's not the Peter Parker, but it's good. Mm. No, but I don't think, I think some of the, it, it's almost like, you know, I mean, this won't happen this time because Peter Parker is such an iconic comics character, but the way you talk about like characters sometimes being rewritten by, because of the way that the screen version becomes iconic. Um, that won't happen with Peter Parker, but I think that Tom Holland is, yes, he's not, he's not your comic book Spider-Man, but he is so believably a Spider-Man and he's such a perfect fit for this world. And I mean, what, what I would he, say. He, he's believable as a, he's believable as a, as a teenage kid and as a kid who wants to be Spider-Man. And while I said that I don't think it really works with some of the themes and whatever, it is refreshing to be looking at this world that has been so, like, with stuff like Civil War, so grim and self-serious at times, to go back to that idea that Marvel, to begin with, was, like, this was their thing. Like, oh, these superheroes are fun, and isn't it fun to be a superhero? And, like, the moment where, like, so it doesn't have the iconic action visuals or that like really iconic shots, but something like Peter running through a park, having to run through the park because there's nothing to swing on going, man, this sucks. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, like I, 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 I really liked those kind of little touches. Um, and that's why I think that's why I would buy, that's why I would make the argument best screen piece of Yeah. I mean, I mean, my only, can... well, my only complaint about Tom, well, sorry, what, what gets me past Tom Holland not being the Peter Parker is just that it's it's a very different proposition to be a sort of socially ostracized nerd in 2017 than it is hmm. in 1963. And to be fair, they do a much better job of getting that across than the Amazing Spider-Man films. Yeah, the Amazing Spider-Man films cool. went for, um, oh, a nerd is a different kind of thing in 2017 and just got it so wrong. This, yeah, because that is, Peter Parker you know, was a dick. Whereas this just is more a, just an unmitigated asshole. I, I think this is more about changing the people around Peter and so how he reacts to the people around him. Rather, you know, he's not surrounded by a bunch of jocks calling him a wallflower. <laughs> that know. that version um, of Flash in this film works so perfectly as like a modern version of Flash. Yeah, because that's like, the kind of guy who would be the dickhead. Yeah, like, like the dickhead yeah. isn't the sports guy. I mean, mm. like a lot of sports guys are dickheads, but not all of them. Like mm. not now, certainly, but. Like, he's not a dick, is he, Flash? He's just a bit of a tool. He's just a bit of an annoying kid. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, yeah. He's like, he's, he's a rich kid who doesn't realise he's overprivileged and, like, he preemptively bullies people. The implication is that he's at that school because he's... Yeah. yeah, like, he, the implication is he's in that school. He's probably relatively intelligent, but, but I mean, he's in that school because he's from a rich family. Yeah, I mean, he is quite smart because he's on the Matley team or whatever, so... Yeah. It's not well, he's like the first reserve. I, yeah, <laughs> and he doesn't answer one. Uh, he doesn't give one answer to in the finals. <laughs> true, true. Um, I, I think, and I he think also with... his his idea of the height of wit is to call someone penis Parker. Penis, yeah. And I can tell you, as someone who has been called like Cunningham Lingus and stuff like that, I'm like, oh wow, you've uh, you've so really thought that one. Yeah, over. I got so James Cunt. So. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah. Well, yeah, James, obviously. that's <laughs> to be yeah. fair. I th- I, th- I think nowadays spastic would be considered more offensive than cunt. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Not in not in the nineties. Um, this is significantly not safe for work section of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just we'll have on to beep out our own names. <laughs> on uh, on on Peter, I think the thing is is that it's not what what you don't get in this film is a complete perfect version of Peter Parker that has all of the elements that you want to see in a portrayal of Peter Parker. But I think that's okay because it is a high school Peter Parker. It's not a 28-year-old Daily Bugle photographer turned science teacher turned whatever Peter Parker. You know, (laughs) he's not going to have all the elements in place. I think the two things that are important are I don't think there's anything about the character that's contrary to what Peter Parker should be, with the possible exception of what James has said about not feeling that he really has the sense of responsibility just yet. But I don't think that he's... There aren't moments where I go, oh, that's not Peter Parker, in the way that the Andrew Garfield version had moments like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, similarly, the you know again, the, the um, Tobey Maguire version doesn't maybe have all the elements that I'd want from Peter, but there's never a moment where I think that's not Peter and and this version is the same. The other thing that's important is that whether or not he's really Peter Parker, he's such an engaging and likable character to spend time with throughout the course of the film that that's what's really important. And I think that's why people have latched on so well to this. He's the best screen Peter Parker because, you know, he's just so, I saw someone compare him to Michael J. Fox and I kind of agree. I think Tom Holland has got that Michael yeah, J. Fox style yeah. charm. Um, I mean, no one, no one quite has that. No, no one, no one's um, going to exactly be Michael J. Fox, but I think he comes he's in pretty school, damn close. Like, he's, yeah. he's got that like affable, like, I don't think anyone is watching non-threatening. That going, yeah, well, like no one is watching this, going like, "Oh, that guy wouldn't be friends with me." Like, yeah, he is—he's everyone's friend. The thing that I've always pointed out about—I mean, about Michael J. Fox and particularly Marty McFly—is that in so many movies, particularly modern movies, there are there are few characters harder to write than the teenage boy because teenage boys are assholes. <laughs> yeah. No, like. Uh, and like they're like, and you watch TV show after TV show that like has this big ensemble cast, and there's the one teenage boy character, and they, you know, they power and they like this this thing bothers them, that thing bothers them, and like, and they're just an- they're just annoying, they're really annoying, and like. If you watch the first twenty minutes of Bats of Future, there are there are certain things that Marty McFly's doing. <laughs> you're like. Oh, Marty, it's a bit of a dick move to yeah. just be hanging off the back of people's cars because you're late to school or whatever. And like, <laughs> and, and, like there's a, the, there's a, the, and when he's like, oh, I, I can't take the rejection of not being there, but because it's because it's Michael J. Fox delivering that performance, bit of a you, you just go, I, I want to be friends with that kid. I want, I want to be friends with that kid. And yeah, and he probably would give me the time of day. And I, yeah, to 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 that point, I agree. Tom Holland is a teenage boy character who you're just like. He feels like a believable teenage boy with the concerns that a teenage boy would have, but also not a nightmare to spend time <laughs> with as a, as a character. Um, so yeah, I, I would say in, in that regard, um, the film knocks it out of the park. But I think, I think just broadly, my, I feel like the, with this character in the MCU, you could make a, 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 a fantastic sequel. I think what it would need is half as many writers. Because this list of credited <laughs> writers on this film is insane. Screenplay by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. Um, John Francis Daly, who of course was in uh, Freaks and Geeks with Martin Starr. Um, John Watts also contributed to the screenplay, as did Christopher Cupford and Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. 
the uh, screen story was by Goldstein and uh, Daly, um, and then you've got your your Marvel cameos: your Stanley, Steve Ditko, Joe Simon, Jack Kirby. And from the information that is out there, there are a lot of other writers who had uh, involvement on this script as well. It's just those are the one, two, three, four, five, six who who, <laughs> who de- met the w- contributed WGA. enough to get WGA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which. For that many to to actually meet the requirements is quite something. <laughs> so let's have maybe a, a a bit more of a an authorial voice over a sequel because I think you can do Spider Man in the MCU, especially post this story, and have it feel even more contained than this film d- does. I think you can interact with the MCU, but I think Spider Man it, it can it can absolutely feel like its own thing. And this character is so. I think, as we've seen before, is so uniquely placed to tell to to do stories where the story is a metaphor, and like the Michael Keaton, the the meeting the dad for the first time scene proves you like that stuff can be massively successful. Um, and I would like to see a sequel that has less writers, a defined thing that kind of like there is a theme that is running through every scene of the movie that the movie is trying to tell that story because i think you can I, I mean and james if you think it's there that's fine but i think you could if you can make the argument for that i certainly don't think it's an argument that you can make is there oh no yeah all the no, way I through don't... and is always and is always a concern that's on the film's mind i think the film's ultimate concern is is this fun right now yes it is yeah because if if it had all that stuff it would be a five-star movie and it's not like it i think there i appreciated the second time around there was more of a story that i was following like an arc for the character rather than a bunch of fun stuff strung together but i also i would never argue that they had a singular theme in mind and they stuck to it and pulled everything into that in you know and it's like the the best superhero movies great and the the vulture's great and the you know they do find a way to tie him to spider-man a bit more directly or to peter parker a bit more directly but it's not Dr. Octopus, is it? It's not that kind of like, oh, that is what is the film is obsessed with. Yeah, in its it's not moment. like, no, it's not a film where everything is facing in the same direction. Hmm. And, and then, and then my final wish would be just a different director. I'd like, I don't believe that John Watts exists. And I have to say, I did watch Cop Car, which is his <laughs> like indie kind of thriller with a kid that looks just like Jeremy Renner in it. Um, and I, I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it, but I don't, I didn't see anything there that went, Oh, this guy should be directing a superhero movie. And I just want Hollywood to stop doing this. Like Colin Trevorrow is about to like direct the third, um, the third Star Wars movie, which, you know, is going to, going to ruin the hopes and dreams of a generation of nerds who go, Oh no, we got, we got sucked back in by the first two good ones from JJ Abrams and Ryan Johnson. And then we got. <laughs> This from the director of Safety Not Guaranteed and Book of Fucking Henry. <laughs> Go, uh, everyone should watch that movie, by the way. Incredible. <laughs> um, the action here, I just thought was, uh, I, I, I was falling asleep every time. And I, I've seen some people praise the Washington Monument sequence. And I got really a, a falling elevator where it never really feels like there are stakes. Like, I mean, obviously, falling, I don't, like, I don't think you're going to crush 10 kids. Falling but. elevators in general are bad. Like, mm. they're bad action scenes because it's like, we've seen that before and there's never been a falling elevator sequence where someone dies at the end. Like, there's no jeopardy. It's just lazy and, it's and like, boring. 
in the actual in the actual action, like I appreciated the kind of the the, the small little gag of Spider Man swinging. Oh, he's hit the ground because uh, he's misjudged the length of the web. Mm-hmm. That's that's a funny little gag. But if you want to have that in your movie, give me one really iconic shot of Spider Man swinging through the streets of yep. like I know it's Manhattan in the past, but do it. You, he's around Manhattan. Like it felt like yeah, it was like at any point in this film. How can we not have the action in Manhattan? Can we have it in Queens? Can we have it on Staten Island? Can we have it? Well, yeah, they tried to make it as New Yorky as possible. Like the only times they're on Manhattan are when they fly to Avengers Tower and when he boards the Staten Island ferry from the tip of the island. (laughs) Like they go out of their way to not be there. Let's hit every borough apart from. (laughs) They Uh, don't do do Bronx, do they? But. But you know what? I just, just give me that one iconic shot of Spider-Man and I walk away from this movie. And I don't have, in my head, I don't have a visual of Spider-Man swinging through the streets. And because, and yes, it's going to be very difficult to recreate what Sam Raimi did in terms of how iconic it looks when you see him swinging through the streets for the first time. But just imitate it then, just imitate it badly. But give me that hero shot because it's Spider-Man and that's what I want. And this film didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So that's the end of my moaning. Uh, an aggressively mediocre film, three stars, Joe Cunningham, Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Look out for it on the posters. <laughs> um, let's let's end on a positive though. That you you two guys just just wax lyrical for at least thirty seconds about why why you do think this is so much better than I I clearly do. Actually, before you wax lyrical, can I just throw in one complaint? Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I really like using the Ramones in a Spider-Man film. They are very well suited, and I like the way that this film essentially has Blitzkrieg Bop as its theme tune. But <laughs> the Ramones recorded a version of the Spider-Man theme song. They... Why? How do you have the Ramones in your film and not play the Ramones version of the Spider-Man theme song? Didn't they do it? Because... They did it in Spider-Man 2, didn't they? I don't it's, think they did. I th- I'm pretty sure it's on the end credits of one of the other three of the three uh, maybe. films, and I think well, that's it still should have uh, still should have been. And also, I'm, I'm not 100 percent <laughs> certain, but I think that's why. And like when they, as soon as I heard Blitzkrieg Bop, I was like, oh, they're going to play the the Ramones theme on the. I end. mean, I'm, but they didn't. I've, we've done it before, like on one of our very first podcasts when we did the the, the news about Spider Man coming into the MCU. I'm going to use that theme as the theme to this podcast, just so you know. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I did well, like the so, Michael Giacchino um Yes, version, that's what I was about to say. Because so, uh, the, the, it, it, I, I think that Michael Giacchino, um, who has been one of my favourite composers, has been, uh, more recently anyway, on a little bit of kind of mediocre form from his scores. Like, I think <laughs> we talked about on Doc... I can actually disagree with you for a change, because even though I'm not a, like a music, uh, like a movie score guy... Have you like, just seen D- War of the Planet of the Apes? Yeah, and I thought to? everything yeah. in that film was like basically tedious crap, except for the score, which was doing a lot of heavy lifting. Like there <laughs> was so much four going... stars out of five. Yeah, but because I respect it was the most begrudging well four stars yeah, I've ever like, seen. <laughs> I respect how well made it was, but I was not having a fun time with that film. <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah, I, so I haven't seen that yet, but I do. I, I've. I think when I think back to Giacchino's best work, it's it's not been on massive blockbusters. Um, like I love his Doctor Strange best... theme. Well, I love the theme, but I don't think that I think the actual the film it's not it's not his finest work. And I think his I think his Rogue One score was already put it together last minute, but it it wasn't 
it wasn't fantastic and um he did a very plinky plunky score to the book of henry um <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so yeah I, I, so i've been kind of like recently going cheeky uh, so, you know and then here i think he does a really great job with that with that theme at the start which really really effectively sets the tone from the start of oh we're gonna we're gonna have a bit more fun with this spider-man but also it's a big epic action movie and and then the way that he kind of weaves that into the actual music of the i mean the score it's, some crucial it's a lot better than really danny nice. elfman's like batman offcut i quite like the danny elfman spider-man thing you mean the yeah, danny me the danny elfman batman offcut theme well, yeah, but you hire Danny Elfman to do a superhero theme. What do you expect him to do? It's like you hired, you know, nobody criticizes John Williams for writing the same theme tune for three different iconic <laughs> movies, do they? Fair, Sacrilege. fair. Okay, should we should, should we do the should we do the closing thoughts though? Um, yeah, it's just I mean, at the end, you know, there's plenty of things you can pick out, and it's made, it's not the perfect Spider-Man film I would have wanted, but for the most part, I had. A, an enjoyable experience apart from the bits where i was just i know how this action sequence is going to play out because i've seen it in the trailer and i know he's going to get his costume taken off him other than that it was enjoyable it was fun it's got it's got a it's got a nice sense of humor it's got nice character stuff as i say it's definitely the funniest spider-man movie which isn't necessarily like that hard a title to attain (laughs) at this point but it's nice to see someone remember what spider-man's supposed to be like and it really does throw even Sharp, into even sharper relief just how bad the Mark Webb films are <laughs> at getting that character. Yeah. Just how grim and humourless. And actually, you know, the thing with the Mark Webb films is in places they try to be funny, but they don't succeed. And just everything around them is just so, oh, it's just so unpleasant. I mean, I just, I don't even th- like thinking about Amazing Spider-Man 2. I hope we don't have to watch it soon. Because... <laughs> I mean, the thing about for me, like that version of Peter Parker in the Amazing Spider-Man films are so like lacking in any sort of compassion, maybe mm. and heart, yeah. and heart, yeah. And Tom Holland has all of that, yeah. And I think, like personally, even though I prefer the more iconic Raimi films, because like that that's the version of Spider-Man I always wanted to see, and that's the version I'll, I'm most satisfied with, like. Any movie that I can watch twice and laugh all the way through, like, is in my good books forever. Yeah. Like, I think this will be a very good sort of comfort movie in that there are some films that you can just stick on and you will, you know, you'll enjoy them. Like Guardians One, like Iron mm. Man One, Iron Man Three for me. Like, I can't see myself ever not thinking, oh, I don't really want to watch Homecoming again. Yeah, like I, I, I can, I'm, I can tell already that I'm going to enjoy it every time I watch it. I, I can see a scenario where that might be the case, but only in the sense of I feel like this film lays the groundwork for what could be a really great sequel. I say not that it sets up anything specific, but just it having built this, I feel like they could take the right things from this and do something even better with the next one. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was true of Raimi's Spider-Man. Exactly. One, and like you know, and I don't tire of watching the first Raimi one. But if you offered me a choice between the first and the second, I'd watch the second. I think the only way that Homecoming's going to look poorer in comparison is is with a better sequel. But I, you know, but it's a good thing that it's, you know, as I say, I, I like the world that it's set up. I want to see more of these characters. Um, I want to see more of this version of Spider Man. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Uh, but that was Spider Man Homecoming. <laughs> so we'll move on now. Uh, oh, you need to recommend. I was going. 
I, I was going to move on to uh, the pitch, but you need to recommend me some comics. Um, and I should point out to the listeners, uh, I know there hasn't been a mini-sode yet since the uh, Dread episode because I've been uh, kind of very busy and stressed in private life for the last week or so. So um, I'm going to record a mega-sode that will be coming out later in the week with um, the comics reactions from that and from this. And then there will be a lot of news as well to get to on there. But yes, comic book recommendations, you guys. <laughs> My recommendation is... Uh... I mean, it was tough to write. I was originally going to try and go with a Vulture comic, but there aren't any good Vulture comics. Like, aside from maybe his introduction, which I know you've already read. So I'm going to go with Civil War Amazing Spider-Man, which collects Amazing Spider-Man 532 to 538. And that's because I think there's a good Spider-Man slash Iron Man relationships, like, at the heart of this story. Um, oh man, that just reminds me that we managed to do that whole discussion of the film and not mention the costume from the end, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> the Iron Spider costume. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it was all the Iron Spider costume really, wasn't it? But, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so <laughs> like, that's why I think that this comic would make a good counterpoint to the film, because it's the best Spider-Man slash Iron Man arc, maybe. Yeah, and I think I started reading Civil War and tried to read Civil War and all of the tie-ins, which was a, a very bad idea, and I stopped. Um, yeah. But I probably should go back and actually just read the main Civil War series. I was going to say, I think... Because I, I think the Spider-Man one I, I probably got three or four issues into. Yeah, I so think this, I, this one is... there's definitely more to get to there. It definitely requires a familiarity, at least, with what's going on in the main series. So if you can find a reading order that tells you how to intercut Civil War with this, I would recommend doing it that way. Because Amazing Spider-Man, yeah, like I have, I have that somewhere. Yeah, Amazing Spider-Man is quite an important component of the wider story. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on with Peter that hmm. reflects, like, it's very closely tied to the main series. So, if you're going to read Civil War and Amazing Spider-Man, then pair it with the core series as well. Brilliant. Okay, so uh, the Amazing Spider-Man Civil War. Um, Seb, what have you got for me? Um, so I'm going to recommend to you uh, volume one uh, of, well actually volumes one and two, but we'll come to that, of Ultimate Comics Spider-Man. Now it's important to uh, <laughs> differentiate here. So this is this is not the oh, first no, volume. I've heard, I've heard <laughs> about all the weird naming conventions with the Ultimate Universe. It went nuts yeah. after a while, didn't it? Yep. Yeah, so this, this is not the first volume of Ultimate Spider-Man from 2000, which I think you have actually read before. Haven't you? The, like the very the original Ultimate. Yes, that was a that was a recommendation on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. Um, this it also isn't the first comic known as Ultimate Comic Spider Man, which was actually a temporary relaunch of the original Ultimate Spider Man in two thousand and nine. When they read they they after Ultimatum, they all of the Ultimate series rather than being Ultimate so and so became Ultimate Comics colon so and so. Um, Spider Man <laughs> did that for a little while and renumbered, but then when they were about to hit, I think issue one hundred and fifty, they went back to the original numbering. And ever since then, it's just been referred to as Ultimate Spider Man, not Ultimate Comics Spider Man. So it's not that either. It's not Peter Parker. What it is, the simpler way to describe it is the first uh, Mars Morales book. Um, actually, the interesting thing as well is that it, it's called Ultimate Comics Spider-Man, officially is the name of the series, but on the cover of the comics, it says Ultimate Comics All New Spider-Man. So, uh, but it's the first Mars Morales stuff, basically. Um, but I think rather than just reading the first volume, which is the first five issues, I think you should read the first two volumes, which is the first 12. 
um, because the first five issues are basically Mars's origin, um, which, you know, is a good story to read, um, or in- introduces Ganky, and even more so than in the <laughs> later stuff that you've read, um, is an even closer approximation of the, of Ned from the film. I was going to say, second... we should, we should point out Ganky is Ned Leeds in all but name. Yeah. Um, even down to the Lego. Um, Sarah Pacelli <laughs> draws a great and very accurate version of the Lego pirate ship in, in the first story arc because <laughs> um, it's that rather than a Death Star because um, I don't think Marvel there was, be, there was no brand uh, synergy to <laughs> there was, yeah there, there was no Disney at that point um, but the second I'm arc I'm confused there was, there was Ganky was in the film I just watched so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really, I, I don't know what you guys are talking no, in about in the next maybe. film he's going to be the Hobgoblin so they had to yeah Death I mean he's going to be brainwashed into it by the original Hobgoblin <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's so a nerd the, joke yeah. So, but the the second arc introduces the versions of Prowler and Scorpion that are an influence on this movie. So, also right, the, okay. the pacing of the first like five or six issues is such that you'll read them so quickly. Um, so you'll get through twelve. It's it's a Brian Michael Bendis stuff. So you'll get through twelve issues. It's not I've, dense storytelling. Um, you'll I've get read through twelve Ma- issues. I've no read problem. Miles Morales post uh, yeah. Secret Wars stuff, and I reckon it takes me on average two to three minutes to read yeah. a Brian Michael Bendis Spider-Man comic. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's yeah. not dissimilar here. But what you get here that you don't get in the Miles comics that you read now, and also what you don't get in this movie is. Spider-Man in a world where there's already been a Spider-Man and he's dead and everyone knows who he was and that's a really interesting hook for that series um, and the stuff that you're reading is just before it will get pulled into a terrible Ultimate Universe crossover that, that if you want to carry on reading you'll probably want to skip past it but um, yeah um, can I ask the, so this this first issue is that the first appearance of Miles Morales or has he been introduced he, at the back he got, of the he got appeared before. in Ultimate Fallout issue three four 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 yeah, yeah. Um, literally just like a, a two or three page scene where you see this kid in a Spider-Man costume turn up fight somebody and take off his mask and actually that, it's chronologically after the events of the comic yeah, so Ultimate Fallout is is after Peter has died, obviously. Um, but the Ultimate Spider-Man following Miles goes back to be like you meet Miles while Peter is still alive, basically. Um, so you don't need the Ultimate Fallout appearance because you get that scene from right, another okay. angle anyway. So it's a completely fresh introduction to him. Like you, you could pick up. I think you could pick up this Ultimate Spider-Man without ever having read another Spider-Man comic before. It, it gives you everything you need. Um, and it's, you know, there are lots of ways in which Miles is different from the Peter Parker of this movie, but this movie, I think, owes more to the Bendis and Pacelli Ultimate Spider-Man than it does to any other interpretation of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, I would completely agree with that. Fantastic. Okay. Um, well, I'm looking forward to going back and reading the start of Miles Morales because it's been something I'd, I'm, I'm sure I've queued up these comics on Marvel Unlimited before, like in my library and just not got actually around to reading them. So yeah, great, great excuse to be able to do that and also to actually finish off reading Civil War this time. Um, um, okay. We'll move, we'll move on to our final section, uh, now, which is the pitch. Um, and I thought after watching, uh, Iron Man in this Spider-Man movie, I thought it would be interesting, particularly if my prediction comes true and Tony Stark isn't around in the MCU by the time we get to Spider-Man Homecoming 2. Or what will it be called? What's the next dance after Homecoming? Is there another <laughs> is it, dance? Is it what, prom? 
a prom and, prom and homecoming aren't the same thing, are they? We uh, we, we, we don't know Carolina a thing. On the podcast. Yes. Well, yeah, where's, where's we tried asking Caroline about this before, didn't we? And we're like, oh yeah, thanks for filling us in on this, and then we've forgotten already. <laughs> I don't know, Spider-Man Spring Break. We'll look forward to that, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but in Spider-Man, in Spider-Man Homecoming 2, I was thinking, which hero would you like to see join that film? So, so Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal sit down and she's like, okay, so we had Robert Downey Jr. last time. Who, who do we get to use this time? Uh, who, who are you recommending? And Seb, I'll come to you first. Right. I just want to make clear that when you worded this pitch to us, you <laughs> said which other Marvel hero. You did not say which other Marvel Studios or MCU hero. Oh, right. Okay. That's that. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. And so for that reason, I'm saying Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. Because who doesn't want to see Hugh Jackman's Wolverine A appear in another film and B appear in a film teamed up with a wisecracking teenage boy? I mean, I don't want either of those things. Not even a little bit. <laughs> it's my time to Wol- shine. Wolverine and Peter Parker is a tried and tested combo to bring about fantastic hilarity. And- <laughs> it's true. I would love to see that film. <laughs> well, I, as it's far a shame as I'm, I'm not pitching this is an open goal for James. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, this is an open goal for James. But uh, James, I'm not going to lie. I've seen you miss him before. <laughs> <laughs> it's alright, I've got a serious answer this time Wow That's that's a rarity as well Although I am cheating a bit because uh, I want to have two heroes In this film Two extra heroes Ooh. And I want those heroes to be Iceman and Firestar And I want the okay. Spider-Man uh, Homecoming yeah. sequel To be uh, In a, a post of, in, a, in a post-Avengers world It is Spider-Man and his amazing friends being the street-level superhero team that New York needs in the absence of greater heroes. Was this a cartoon? It was a cartoon, Joe. How old are you? Spider-Man and his amazing yeah, friends not- is Spider-Man for people who don't like Spider-Man. Yep. So, <laughs> so why are you pitching it? Because. It's like the worst <laughs> thing that Spider-Man's ever been in. That, oh, is, no, a, that is a lie. Sin's look, past is the worst thing that Spider-Man. Iceman, okay, Iceman is cool because the X-Men are cool. Firestar is awesome because she's like the like flying fire girl version of the Human Torch. And I just I don't know how to sell it better than that. It's never been clearer to me that neither of you guys want to win the pitch anymore. <laughs> you, you don't. You've there was a time where you were keeping track of scores. Look, Joe, is like, it, is it there, help? there was a time there was a time when we got given the premise more than like an hour before recording the episode. <laughs> and there was a gonna... time when I didn't forget up until five minutes ago that I had to prepare one. Is it is it gonna help if I point out that in Spider Man and his amazing friends, they all live together in an apartment and they could push a button and it made a computer table come out of the floor and like the walls revolved to turn it into a kind of what, like, futuristic spy base? Like, that was a thing that happened. It's good, you should you watch it. Pan- you, you all, you both could have just pandered to me and said Matt Murdock, and I'd have been, I'd have been happy forever. Look, it would have Tom, no, if Tom Holland Spider-Man shared a film with <laughs> Matt Murdock, he would be horrified. He would be like, "Why? what yeah. are you doing to that guy's eye? Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man could teach him to be less violent. 
He could be. T- he could. It could be the, uh, if, the arc of like Spider Man's the mentor this time. If Spider Man met Daredevil, that he doesn't need to eyeball. If Spider Man met Matt Murdock, he would web him up and put him in a like psych ward. <laughs> uh, uh, you're, I mean, you're right. My answer was just as terrible as both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I don't, no one wins the, I'm not even going to say you share the pitch this week. No one wins the pitch this week. And I invite the listeners to come up with any answer that is worse than the three that we've provided between <laughs> us. At least none of us said Deadpool, which was the Ugh. obvious boring option. Which I, I, I read, I read Spider-Man Deadpool that. comics. I don't get it. Why do you want to turn Spider-Man into the straight man? What, what's, what's the fun in that? Yeah. Like, I know what we'll team up. We'll team up two wisecracking characters. Ah, oh, no, anyway. So, we're all losers this week, is essentially the message. <laughs> but that is it for this week, and this has been a very long podcast, depending on uh, how much I edit it down, but I think it's going to be long. Uh, but hopefully that makes up for it being a longer gap between between the podcast. But we, we thought this was particularly an episode where the three of us should all be on to talk about it, because it's a Spider-Man film, and... Um, as such, is a special occasion. That's, I mean, Spider-Man films aren't like buses. It's not like two podcasts about Spider-Man films come around back to back or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon. Uh, that's at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Um, and James, you have some people that you'd like to thank. Yes, we have two new Patreon backers. Uh, I would like to thank Imogen Gold and uh, someone who sounds like a superhero called Frostbite. Uh, that's with two S's. Frostbite. I think Imogen Gold sounds like a superhero as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, all our listeners are superheroes, clearly, especially the Patreon backers. They're <laughs> the most super of superheroes. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, well, that's that's great. Uh, so thank you to you guys. Um, everyone else, you can find more episodes of the show at our website, cinematicuniverse.com, um, where uh, there's, there's still bun- a, a bunch of fun features and news articles and reviews and whatnot going up. Jo- uh, James, you uh, reviewed Spider-Man Homecoming in, uh, in in text form on there, um, and also War for the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, and recently. Baby Driver. So if you like yes. me being mean about films... And, uh, and you, if gave, you gave two of those films four stars. Yeah, but like, <laughs> I. What did you give Baby Driver? Three. Generous. I mean, my. Oh, I'm, I'm glad that you hated it too. <laughs> like, my, my yeah. thing, like, my hook is that all of my reviews read like a two. <laughs> there's, there's also on, on the site, if you're in a Spider Man mood, um, my look back at the comic book adaptation of the first Sam Raimi movie, which was written by Stan Lee. Uh, and probably mostly by Brian. <laughs> I was going to say that's written in uh, speech marks. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so that's a fun thing to look back on, I think. So give that a read. We should say as well, like, our condolences to Stanley. Yes. Oh yeah, it was really, really sad news. And if anyone, did, um, if anyone doesn't know, uh, Stanley's wife, Joan Lee, died, and without her, there's quite possibly no Marvel Universe. Because she, yeah. she's the one who encouraged him to write one comic he was proud of before he quit the industry. He was basically, yeah, he was basically going to quit comics, and she was like, "Why don't you just do one that's how you want them to be?" <laughs> and that um, that comic was Fantastic Four. 
Yeah, I mean, there are those who would argue that that's maybe not the way the Fantastic Four got created, uh, <laughs> because there are certainly other tellings uh, relating to Jack Kirby. But certainly, for his part in it, that's how Stanley tells his part in it. So, yeah, would we, we wouldn't be here talking everything... about this if not for Joan Lee. Basically, on a just a, on a human level, everything you read about their relationship—I mean, the the amount of time that they were together, and clearly how close they were, and how important they were to one another—thoughts uh, have to go out to Stanley. It's, it's just heartbreaking when I read it. So, yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up, James. <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, genuinely, it was. It, I think it was. Uh, it was something we should mention. Um, but yeah, so that's that's all we have to say other than if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at cine underscore verse. And you can send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Uh, so thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Knock, knock. Mr. Criminal? Hey, my name is Spider-Man. You can call me Webhead. You can call me Amazing. Just don't call me late for dinner. You get it? Yeah, we really didn't get it. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with the Amazing Spider-Man 2.